That's not beer. <laughs> I didn't know if you would be on. I was trying to leave you a little nugget for when you were editing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Welcome to episode 44 of the RF Generation Playcast. I'm Ghost 81 and this is our discussion of our November game for 2017. This month, we tackled an original Game Boy game for the first time in our history, and who better to bring on the show than the Game Boy guru himself, Metal Fro, for the discussion. Final Fantasy Adventure is a game Rich and I have had in the oven for a long time, and this month we finally decided to take the plunge into this handheld slice of old-school fantasy. Did you play this game back on the original Game Boy? Ever wonder how it would hold up today? Stay tuned as Rich and I hash it out with Metal Fro in our main discussion. Please remember to like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter. You can listen to the show on iTunes and Podbean. As always, don't forget to log on to rfgeneration.com to join our playthroughs and discuss the spectacular games we play together. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the Playcast. Should we introduce Josh right off the bat? Because, man, that's the first thing on the outline, and that means we have to go that way. Do we? (laughs) Those are rules? (laughs) (laughs) So, for those who are hearing a third voice, it's been a while since we've had a guest here, Rich, but uh, we're doing our first Game Boy game ever, and we had to bring on the Game Boy Guru, so... We got Metal Fro here. Josh, say hi. Introduce yourself. Hello. I am Metal Fro from Arc Generation and uh, known throughout the interwebs both as Metal Fro and Game Boy Guru. 
Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks for joining us. You want to tell them about your channel? Sure. I run a YouTube channel called Game Boy Guru, and I am trying to do video reviews, basically, of uh, the entire North American licensed Game Boy library. So a little over 500 games. And, of course, I'm doing written reviews as well with screenshots and all of that sort of thing. And then my video reviews are me reading my written review along with gameplay footage that you can watch. Yeah, and uh, you can find these gameplay footage videos and even some of his blog entries on RF Generation. And I just want to say, and I've, I've mentioned this to Josh before, but man, your reviews are just really in-depth and incredible. I, I told Josh, I said, I mean, you need to work on a book or something because they're really that detailed and really that good. So uh, Josh is uh, like Sean. He's uh, one of the writers at RF Generation and like myself. And so, you know, you can catch all of our stuff on the front page there. Uh, you want to tell them a little about the last video that you did? Sure. The most recent one was for Alleyway on the Game Boy. When I first started the blog, I kind of did a couple of random reviews, and then I decided to get all the launch titles out of the way kind of up front. And so uh, I've been doing the blog for a couple, three years now, so I'm sort of playing catch-up with doing the videos. So now I've done Alleyway. And I've got one more launch title to do, which is Tennis. And then hopefully once I get through that, I can kind of start making more videos more quickly so I can catch up to where my reviews are. <laughs> because then my goal would be to have, when I put out a brand new written review, then I'll do the video of the previous review. And that'll motivate me to kind of keep going so I can have a steady stream of content. Now, are you going to organize your reviews in any way? I mean, are you going to do like Konami titles and then move from there? Or is it just going to be kind of freeform? It's pretty much freeform. Um, I decided initially to pretty much just do it in random order because I thought it would be more interesting that way. There are already people doing chronological reviews of Game Boy games, mm -hmm. uh, like Jeremy Parrish. And, um, Who I got to meet yesterday, actually. Oh, man. That would be awesome. And there's another gentleman from the UK who's uh, doing what's called the Super GB Show that he does. A, it's a podcast, and then he's got a Twitter account. He's doing a book where he's reviewing all of the Game Boy library. But like Jeremy Parrish, he's doing it the entire library, all regions, and completely chronological. Okay. And so for me, you know, I wanted mine to be a little less academic, so to speak. But still, you know, in-depth reviews and, and focus more on the North American library simply because I'm North American. These are all games that, you know, came out either while I was a Game Boy owner or at some point past that. This is all stuff that would have been available to me during the time that I've owned Game Boys. And so that's kind of my focus. You know, I'll, I'll probably sneak in a Japanese or European exclusive from time to time as I find them. but. The primary focus is going to be the North American library. And I, I wanted to do it in a random order just because then I can cover different genres. Um, yeah, keep it interesting. Right. I mean, when you look at the library in a chronological order, you do get a lot of different genres. But only focusing on the North American market, I felt like there might be too many platformers or too many puzzle games or, or things like that kind of bunched together. And so I thought, if I can do it in a random order, not only do we get some perspective as to, 
you know, early games versus later games, but I don't know. I just thought the variety might be nice. Okay. And you're also going for a complete set, correct? Uh, yeah. I'm Specifically, I'm going for a licensed non-variant set. I have grabbed a couple of variants, but I'm not going out of my way to get those. Yeah, I got you. Um, so, like, for example, you know, since we're covering Final Fantasy Adventure today, my cart of that is the original Square release. But I've got the other three, the Final Fantasy Legend games. Two of those are Square releases. One of them is a Sunsoft reissue. You know, so if I stumble across the one that I have, the Sunsoft version, the original, in the wild, and I can get it cheap, I might pick it up. But I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to pay the same amount of money for an original copy that I paid for the Sunsoft version just to have, you know, another version. I got you. I know some uh, Game Boy titles are a little bit tough to get. Some of them are uh, out there, especially the, uh, was it the Spud's Adventure games? Oh, Those yeah. Are a pricey. Yeah, Spud's Adventure, Amazing Tater. Most of the heavy heaters I, I have yet to grab, so I'm still missing Mega Man 4 and 5, Castlevania Legends, Kid Dracula, Contra the Alien Wars. You know, most of those I'm still I'm still lacking, unfortunately. Well, good luck in your search, man. It's uh, a really cool set to uh, to try to get, and uh, I, I didn't have a, a whole lot of experience with uh, Game Boy, and I guess we'll kind of talk into that when we get into talking about our game. Thanks for joining us for the call, man, and I'll kick it back to Sean. Very cool. So we've been kind of experimenting with kicking off our discussion with some random topics. So I asked Rich if I could start with some literature this month because something happened to me just mentally recently. I realized that I haven't read a book in a (laughs) scary long time. Like I just haven't been able to focus or get through a book. And as it happened, I watched this YouTube video kind of randomly about cell phone addiction. So that kind of prompted me to kind of back off of the mental stimulation of constantly being on social media and the weird psychological like seeking out of validation that that brings and all the psychology behind that. And I don't want to get too deep into it, but let's just say I I reeled back how much I was using my cell phone and going on social media and it enabled me to relax my mind and start reading books again. And I'm very happy about that. So I just wanted to throw out some book recommendations. And the first book I read didn't really blow me away, Rich, but it's one of our favorite authors, uh, Haruki Murakami, yep. who I got to be honest, I know we talk about him a lot. It's He's an author that I'm starting to feel is giving me on a personal level kind of diminishing returns. And I wonder if that's because I read uh, 1Q84 first, and that's known by a lot of people as his like masterpiece. So I, I don't know. Um, I read Wind Up Bird Chronicle and I liked it, but not as much as 1Q84. And most recently I read South of the Border, West of the Sun, which is a very simple book, mm-hmm. but but it deals with a lot of the same themes that I've seen in all three of those novels, which is the struggle between kind of reality and non-reality, which is a huge element in 1Q84. But yeah, this book was enjoyable to me and we kind of talked about it how even though it didn't blow me away story-wise and it was 
familiar themes that seem to be repeated from other novels of his. The way it's written, and also you got to give credit to the translators of these works for, you know, translating it into English in a way that is so readable that you just find yourself going through the book, even if the story isn't gripping you. Yeah, it's very well written. Everything that he does is just superb. I haven't read IQ 8-4. It's one of the only ones I haven't read by him. And I think I mentioned to you, it's just so daunting. Like, the book is so thick. It was actually written in three parts. And there's actually a set that you can buy where you can just read each book at a time. But to have that massive, like, I don't know how many pages it is. It's got to be over 2,000 pages um, in your hands and trying to read it is a little daunting for me. But I've read everything else by him. And Wind Up Bird Chronicle is probably by far my favorite. But as far as diminishing returns, I think he does hit along, like you said, the same topics of um, this idea of magical realism. There's this edge of everything seems very realistic, but there's a, a, a hint of magic like in each book that is more fiction. But as you read, you're kind of like, well, maybe that could actually happen. It, it's a really strange concept. And I think he's probably the only author that I've ever read that pulls it off so well. But, you know, I'd really encourage you to to keep reading some of his books. I think you'll find that some of them are better than others. Uh, South of the Border is not one of my favorites and probably one of my least favorites by him. And so there are quite a few more. I think you said you had Kafka on the Shore, uh, yeah. which I really liked. And then the um, Wild Sheep Chase I liked a lot. And there's at least three or four books that kind of go along with that. So I, w- I would suggest, you know, maybe taking off and uh, trying that route next. And, of course, Norwegian Wood is probably his most famous book. It's worth reading. I love his stuff, man, and it makes me sad to know I've gotten toward the end of uh, all of his novels and all his works uh, because uh, I-, I find it's kind of hard to replace it as far as finding someone else that I enjoy reading as much as I enjoy him. Well, I got to highly recommend uh, 1Q84. I-, I read that book... As some people on the forum know, that was that was actually the book that we tried to do like a book club on on RF Generation. (laughs) And I actually read this book during the three month period where my wife lived in Texas and I still lived in New Jersey because of the plot of the book of these two lovers trying to find each other in what seems like an alternate reality. It really, really hit me hard, like on a personal level, like in an amazing way. And it's something that I'll never forget in the context of what was going on in my life at the time. So uh, it's definitely a very special work to me personally. Josh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you want to jump in on this, have you ever read any uh, of Haruki Murakami's novels? No. In fact, outside of listening to the playcast, I'm not sure I'd ever heard of him. Okay. Yeah, highly recommend. <laughs> it's it's yeah. something Rich and I have bonded on a lot over the years, so totally recommend. I want to move along, though. Um, so one of my other favorite authors is actually Margaret Atwood, and uh, she's in the consciousness now because of two Netflix shows that are out, um, an adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale and also uh, Alias Grace, which are two of her novels. So she's you know, in the popular consciousness, as I said, but she's always been one of my favorite authors. Uh, So I read a novel that she wrote in the late 80s called Cat's Eye, which is a really good just character study of of an aging 
artist who's looking back at her past and it's the story of her life and as a story as a novel it kind of peaks pretty early but again it's so well written that it's just lush and very descriptive in a good way so I was kind of sucked into that and then I also read Solaris I'm a big sci-fi fan I always kind of default to sci-fi if I don't know what to read so I had heard good things about this book. Now, this one is was a little bit more challenging for me to read because it's translated from, I believe, Polish or Russian. Um, mm-hmm. And the translation is a tad clunky. There's a lot of wordplay in there. It's, it's a 200-page book, but a very, not very challenging, but it was a tad challenging and a little slow for me. So worked my way through that one, but that's a good book. And, and Rich, I understand you're a big fan of one of the film adaptations of this one? Yeah, uh, the Tarkovsky film adaptation. I think I'd watched it for the first time back in grad school, and uh, it really blew me away. I mean, it's a beautiful film, just really well done. And if you're really in the sci-fi, uh, definitely one that you should pick up. They uh, put it out on Criterion. It's one of the early ones that they put out. And yeah, I can't recommend it enough as a great sci-fi film. Skip the George Clooney version, though. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not particularly interested in that, but I definitely think you would enjoy the book. Again, it's not like hard to read, but you got to just relax and take your time with it. You can't buzz through it. The book I'm currently reading, however, I'm just buzzing through, and it's the last book I'll talk about. It's called All You Need Is Kill by Hiroshi Sakurazaka. This book was adapted into the Tom Cruise film Edge of Tomorrow, which was like a little sci-fi movie. I haven't seen it, but the movie came highly recommended by a friend of mine. He's like obsessed with it. I haven't seen it yet, but I saw the book at Savers, so I just grabbed it and started reading it. It's really cool. Pulpy flashy action sci-fi definitely a good palate cleanser after reading solaris like slowly and carefully to be able to go to a pulpy action sci-fi novel yeah i like it a lot and i'm definitely going to seek out more of this gentleman's uh, novels because it's pretty cool so yeah that's it thank you for indulging me on my my reading (laughs) kick because when we get to what have you been playing there ain't much for me because I haven't been playing much. I've just been reading and reading and reading since I caught this urge again. And it's very gratifying after not reading a book for like a year. That's not like me. I've, I've been well read all my life, you know, so it's just weird. So I'm grateful that this is going on in my life. Yeah, it's kind of nice to unplug every once in a while, no doubt. Um, but yeah, no problem. I know people will enjoy listening to our literature conversation. I was surprised at how many people actually enjoyed our baseball conversation the other day. We got some feedback from that on social media. So that was pretty cool, you know? Yeah, that's right. Our friend and former guest on the show, Buried on Mars, said he liked the uh, baseball talk. And uh, just an update to congratulate the Houston Astros on winning the 2017 World Series in seven games over the Dodgers. Yeah, it was a good series. Yeah, it was. It was. So there's just a tiny little bit more baseball talk for (laughs) (laughs) y'all. So uh, as we mentioned on several of our calls, Sean and I are big fans of the musician Kishi Bashi, and we had bought tickets for the upcoming show. I went to see him a few weeks ago, and I got to say, man, it was one of the best shows I've seen, hands down. The opener, Tall Tall Trees, 
fantastic musician. I ended up purchasing a vinyl at the show of his just because my wife and I enjoyed him so much. And I know you're going to see them in late November, and I'm really hoping that what I heard that he's going to break off from the tour on Thanksgiving isn't true and you get to see him with the band because he's incredible. Yeah, I have no idea, and I I haven't even looked into it. Maybe I'm I'm afraid of what I might find because <laughs> you know Tall Tall Trees is part of Kishibashi's band, and I can't yeah. imagine seeing Kishi without TT. Yeah, <laughs> so I don't <laughs> I don't know now. Josh, we've talked about Kishibashi every month for the past like four months. Did we pique your interest to listen to him or? Um, you know. I must say, I've been remiss. I haven't checked them out yet. But every time you, you say the name Kishibashi, it makes me think of Kishibojin, the mythical Japanese goddess of like fertility and childbirth. And that segues into my favorite Japanese band called Onmyosa. Their 2012 album was a concept album about the goddess, and it's actually one of their best albums. And so every time I hear you guys talk about that, it makes me think of that. <laughs> And then it makes me want to go listen to that album. <laughs> so That's funny. And, and we should point out that uh, Metal Fro, it's not just a name. He's, he's a metalhead, too. So uh, that's mainly his uh, area of interest, as far as I know. Correct, Josh? Yeah. I mean, I, I like music of all kinds, but metal is definitely, by and large, my favorite. So, you know, you guys talking about this Kishibashi concert. I don't get to go concerts very often because of where I live. I'm kind of way far away. But uh, I did actually get to go see Iron Maiden here a few months oh, ago. Oh, wow. Nice. And that, and that was fantastic. Who opened for them when you saw them? Uh, it was Ghost. Oh, man. I missed that show because of my <laughs> surgery. God, I love Ghost, man. They were my favorite metal bands. So. Really? Oh, yeah. I love Ghost and I love Iron Maiden, of course. Uh, awesome, man. I won't talk any more about the Kishibashi show. And a big part of that is, is I sent a message to Sean. I said, I really enjoyed it, but I'm not going to talk about the songs or the lineups or anything like that because I don't want to ruin the experience for him. Yeah. And we can only talk about it so much. And <laughs> I was just going to say, I'll, you'll hear about it again after I see him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to save it for the next show, but uh, there was one song that they played as an encore that was really, really special to me. And, uh, I hope that's something that we can talk about on the next show, but I'll leave it at that so we can move on. I don't want to move on too far. I just want to say real quick, I was fortunate enough to see two really good shows recently. I saw the group Yell, that's spelled Y-E-L-L-E. They're a French pop dance electro group that I've been listening to for years. They're not super prolific. They have three albums. All three of them are amazing. They're the kind of group that like... They don't have a single song that I can say I don't like that song, you know. So when they came around, I knew I had to take the opportunity to see them because they're from France and they're not in the U.S. all the time. So seeing them was really good. Their singer, Julie Boudet, is just beautiful and charismatic and sultry. And it was just a really good show. Have you guys ever heard of Tegan and Sarah? Yes. Yep. Yeah, so their album... The Con, which came out in 2007, that was right around the time I was starting to hang out with my wife. I mean, we got married in 2007, but we were dating or hanging out like for a year before that. And we used to just like go to the mall and buy CDs to listen to together. And one of the things we happened upon was Tegan and Sarah's The Con, 
which they were just a band that I had heard of at the time. So we bought that and it was one of those albums that when we listened to it together the first time we were like, oh my God, this is so good. So we ended up seeing them on the tour for that album right after it came out with a bunch of our friends. It's one of the best shows I've ever been to. And they announced earlier this year that they were doing a 10th anniversary tour on that album and playing the whole album. And as soon as that was announced, I told my wife, I was like, I don't care how much these tickets cost. (laughs) Like, we are going to this show. So um, they played at the Paramount Theater, which is, I don't know the history of it, but it must be 150 years old theater in downtown Austin. And uh, it was just really awesome. They played the whole album in this like mellow acoustic way. It was very haunting. It's a, it's a very sad and emotional album. And, uh, and then they played a bunch of other songs from their history throughout it. So that was a really awesome and special thing to go to. But yeah, I think Tegan and Sarah's The Con is probably in my top five albums of all time. Cool. I've heard the name, never listened to any of the music, so I'll have to check that out for sure. Awesome. Josh, you're a YouTuber. Are you a fan of uh, the Angry Video Game Nerd? Oh, yeah. I've watched uh, a lot of the early videos and uh, kind of lost interest in the past couple of years just because his formula has become a bit rote. And I think now he's doing it more because it supports the other stuff he wants to do rather than because it's his primary focus. Actually, now that you bring that up, he's doing some really cool stuff. I wasn't even going to mention this, but he's doing these videos about the classic monster movies and the weird little intricacies of the movies and the behind the scenes stuff and the mysteries of these movies that were made so long ago. Uh, Um, Cinemassacre is what it's called. Yeah. And uh, the reason I brought it up, though, is because he did a a video on Polybius. And I don't know if there's some kind of anniversary, but there seem to be a lot of videos popping up about Polybius lately. And for those who don't know, Polybius is like an urban legend in video gaming. It, It was supposedly an arcade game that was around in the Seattle area in the early 80s. And it made people go crazy. And the men in black, you know, collected data from it. You could read up on the internet about it. But AVGN did a video on it. And I gotta say, it was really well done. There were parts I didn't love about it. And it It wasn't perfect, but as far as a YouTube video, there were some real, like, moments of brilliance in it. And I texted you, Rich. I was like, you got to watch this thing. And uh, I thought you had a pretty nice reaction to it, too. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun video to watch. It was put out around, I think it was around Halloween, wasn't it? So it was kind of the perfect thing to do. And it really kind of got me into looking into the the lore, the mythology of this Polybius machine. If you don't know anything about it, it's worth checking out. And uh, even the gaming historian, Norm, has done a video on Polybius. So yeah, you should definitely look into that. And what's equally funny about it is I had told you that I had gotten a Super Pac-Man machine and I was going to convert it and restore it back to a Super Pac-Man but put a multiplayer board inside of it. Well, I've decided that now since decals for that machine are like 300 bucks. That what I'm going to do instead is to just paint it and turn it into a Polybius machine with a Polybius <laughs> marquee on it and put the same board in it, you know, the multiplayer board in it. So I just thought that would be kind of cool, you know, and something fun to do with that machine. Uh, and when people see it, maybe they'll get kind of a laugh out of it. That's cool. 
Yeah, I, I actually watched that video when I saw it come up in my my YouTube feed, and you know I haven't watched a lot of James's videos lately. At least not many of his AVGN videos, but more of the like the James and Mike Mondays and the stuff like that that they've been doing. More just playing a game together and kind of talking about it because I find those are more interesting now than his AVGN videos. But when I watched the video, I thought it was really well done. And for those that don't know with the whole Cinemasker thing, video games are a big part of James Rolfe's life, but his real passion is like movies, specifically horror movies. And so I thought this Polybius video was a really cool way of kind of taking that passion of horror movies and also the interest in video games and kind of intersecting them in a unique and interesting way. And I commented as much on the video after I watched it. I think it's probably the best thing he's done in years. Yeah. It was a beautiful kind of crossing of the streams. Yeah. I really liked it. And I'm not a big horror fan. You know, I like thrillers. But I really genuinely felt like it was a a well-done video. And it's funny that you mentioned The Gaming Historian, because I think he was kind of the first one here, I want to say a year or so ago, to kind of do a video on Polybius sort of in-depth and that. And, and yeah, there there have been a few more that have popped up within the last year. Yeah. I actually ordered a copy of the uh, Metal Gear Solid Game Pro. I think it's from uh, September 2003 that actually has the first reference to Polybius in it. I uh, ordered that off the internet. So uh can't wait to uh, check that out and read it because that's sort of what many consider sort of the origin source of uh, this myth. Nice. Cool. <laughs> Yeah, I love stuff like that. It's really interesting. Speaking of other stuff I love, uh, I did want to talk a minute about the convention this weekend that was in my hometown, and it's called Super Famicon, and this is the second year of the convention. I should say that this convention is heavily fighting game and competitive, like Mario Kart intensive, but mainly it's a huge Smash Brothers event. And so that was what was going on in this like three-story area on the second and the bottom floors. So that was what it's mainly about. But they did have some vendors, and it was cheap enough to where I decided I was going to take my six-year-old son this year. Because he's never been to a convention before. He wanted to go up to Connecticut with me this year. But I was like, nah, I want to kind of test the waters first. And I realized that that was the very smart thing to do, because the kid lasted all of two hours and 15 minutes at the convention. (laughs) (laughs) Again, he's six years old. He liked the vendors and stuff. He's really into Pokemon now. And so... 
I gave him some money and he was really careful about how he spent his money and he walked around and he kind of decided what he wanted. And so it was a really fun experience for us. I picked up several games, which I'm going to mention in pickups a little later on. You know, uh, this has been kind of guys weekend. He and I are home right now by ourselves while the wife has taken my daughter out of state to a soccer tournament and uh, dropped off the uh, toddler at my parents' house. So it's been Dudes Weekend, so we've played a lot of games, and you're going to hear about some of those when we get to what are you playing. But uh, yeah, fun experience. Uh, The ticket prices were such that it's definitely something that I would spend a day going to again uh, next year. Limited Run Games was there, so I got to pick up a few games for some friends, And then uh, also got to meet Jeremy Parrish, who was there from the Retronauts podcast. I did not get to sit in on the panel. Uh, (laughs) I walked by the room, but uh, with a six-year-old with me, there's no way he would have sat in that panel. And I would have rather not gone than to be disruptive. So we skipped out on that. But uh, but yeah, fun time with my son and uh, really enjoyed that. That's awesome. I actually laughed there because the thought jumped into my head of you being on the Retronauts panel. So that was a little <laughs> awkward, but that that was the only thing I could think of. <laughs> with, a, with a screaming kid. Yep, that was right, me. Right. Yep. <laughs> well, you mentioned that this is the first month that we've played a Game Boy game. And, you know, we're, we're somewhere around 115 games that we've played so far with our group at RF Generation and the playthroughs. And you put out the question on Twitter, what is your favorite original Game Boy game, Sean, right? So uh, I'll let you go with that. Yeah, so again, trying to drum up some participation and feedback here. And and we just want to throw out, we want to get some stupid questions. So if you follow us on Twitter, ask us stupid questions because we're kind of itching to answer them. On the Collector Cast panel from Retro World Expo, people were asking about hot dogs and stuff, and I got a little <laughs> jealous that it was I bacon. Wasn't... It was yeah, bacon. Oh, whatever. <laughs> 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 so yeah, ask us food questions because I'm jealous that I didn't get to talk about food. Anyway, <laughs> no, but I figured this this would be simple. Just tell me what your favorite original Game Boy game is, and uh, we got some great feedback. From former co-host of the show, Disposed Hero, Steven, he said it's a toss-up between Metroid 2 and Link's Awakening, two games that I haven't played, but I believe both of you have played both of those? Yes. Of yes. Course. I uh, actually just played through it in January and did a, a review, so... That's Link's Awakening, right? Correct. Okay, cool. Awesome. Our very own Bickman2K also chimed in with Metroid 2. He said it was the first Game Boy game he beat. Chris, better known as Duke Togo, friend of the show, former guest, and host of the Collector Cast, he puts it very well. Tetris, a classic for the ages. I don't think you could say it any better than that. Yeah. How many hours have all of us put into Tetris on the Game Boy? I, I just can't even fathom. That's right. One of the most legendary pack-in titles of all time, I would think. So mine is Castlevania II Belmont's Revenge. I played this game so much as a kid. I had the first one, too, the first Castlevania on Game Boy. Didn't understand why it was so bad. I understand now trying to replay it (laughs) uh, in this day and age. 
but I think Castlevania 2 on the Game Boy still holds up. It's an amazing game. Music, graphics, everything is just amazing. I can play through it anytime and beat it. And uh, that's easily my favorite Game Boy game. Crabmaster jumped in with Revenge of the Gator, which I thought was awesome because Revenge of the Gator is one of those games that is often referenced as like an internet meme or joke. That is, if you know what Revenge of the Gator is, you're like down as a video gamer. Like, you know, you know what's up. Nice. So, <laughs> For those who aren't down, Revenge of the Gator is a it's just a really good pinball game. Yeah. I know you guys know that, but if any of our listeners didn't know that, now you know. So, uh, unless y'all want to comment on anybody else's choices, I'll I'll throw it to you guys for your choices of best OG Game Boy games. I'll let our guests go first. Go ahead, Josh. Now having played all of the ones that have already been mentioned, specifically Metroid 2 and Link's Awakening, those are really good picks, but I'm going to have to stick with my old standby, which is the original Super Mario Land. Okay, um, yeah. It's one of the first Game Boy games I've ever, I ever played. It's one that I go back to constantly. I try to sit down and play through it at least once a year, which only takes about a half an hour. And, you know, it's just fun every time. The soundtrack is great. I like that they took a couple of liberties with the property since it wasn't developed by Shigeru Miyamoto and that they did a couple things different with it, but it still looked, sounded, and felt enough like a Mario game that it didn't feel out of place. Outside of, of Tetris, it's definitely the best launch title in the library, and I think the fact that all these years later it still stands the test of time, you know, just speaks to the quality of the game. Very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That would be in my top five. I also really love this game. I love how it's kind of weird and different as far as Mario games go. And I remember when I was a kid, I liked the music so much that I used to make up words to the songs and, and sing along, to <laughs> sing my own songs to the to the music. So that's that's awesome. You want to hum a few bars? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't remember them, but... The, yeah, the great soundtrack. So, uh, Rich, what do you got? All right, man. I got to admit, you know, being the old guy on here, the Game Boy was sort of out of my wheelhouse. That was out, you know, when I was in probably around when I was in college. So my brother, who's 12 years younger than me, I mentioned before on the show, he had a Game Boy and he was really, really into it. Played a lot of Pokemon but every once in a while, when I was home, I would pick it up or play it, you know, on like a car trip with the family during the summer. And probably the game that I played the most on there was baseball. It's a really simple game, you know, nothing really in depth. But I don't know, man, it was a lot of fun for me. But just because I was such a fan of like RBI baseball on the Nintendo that uh, it just kind of felt at home in the limited amount of games that my brother had. But as far as recommendations, I've been collecting quite a bit now. And Sean, you'll like this next recommendation. Godzilla is a fun game on the Game Boy. It's like a little puzzle game. Yeah. Um, it's a fairly cheap game. You can pick it up probably for about five bucks. And it's definitely one that I think you should check out. It's not typical Godzilla games tend to be these sort of fighting games. But this one is a lot different than that. And like I said, it's sort of a, a neat and intricate puzzle game. Have you ever played that one, Josh? Yeah, I picked that one up probably a year ago or so, and I, I've kind of toyed with it a little bit. I haven't got very far because, you know, it was more of uh, testing the game out after cleaning it and that sort of thing. But 
it's one that I'll be curious to go back to. I think it's one that I probably will want to either find a PDF scan or get a manual for, just because I was a little confused as to what I was supposed to be doing when I yeah. played with it a little bit. So definitely want a bit more context. Yeah, a little bit of a learning curve on that game, for sure. And then the other game that I had, the last one, was a game called Trax, T-R-A-X, uh, which is like a little tank shooter that's a lot of fun. It's a little more difficult to find, but not a very expensive game. I think it runs about 20 bucks or so. But if you ever run across tracks, it's definitely one to pick up. I'll second that. All right, so let's get into some pickups then. Uh, I'm going to throw it over to our guest because he has a tendency to do pickups on his YouTube channel. So, Josh, tell us a little bit about that and give us some pickups that you've had recently. Sure. Uh, so whenever I get the chance to go game hunting or I get stuff in the mail, I'll typically compile that stuff together and do a pickups video. If I have a, a decent haul, I'll make a video. You know, if I only found two or three things, I typically don't. I'm not going to do a video until I get some more stuff. And then I can just mention, oh, yeah, you know, last weekend and, and this weekend or, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks or whatever. Thankfully, in the area where I live, I'm one of a handful of hardcore collectors. And so most of the time when I go out and specifically go hunting, I can pick up enough stuff that one trip is, you know, a decent video where I can show off 20, 25, 30 items. I don't want to detail everything I've picked up because it's been a couple of years since I've been on the podcast. But I thought I would uh, cover maybe a few highlights. <laughs> yeah, please don't do that to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that would make the podcast insufferably long. But, uh, yeah, I thought I'd cover a few of the highlights of things I picked up recently. And, uh, you know, a couple of things, you know, maybe a little bit more under the radar. The big thing, I guess, is I picked up the Nintendo Switch when it came out. I actually got it on launch day. And it's a bit of a funny story. I, I didn't have the money to pre-order it when pre-orders went up. And so I thought, well, I want to get it at launch, but I don't know, you know, if I'm going to be able to afford it. And uh, I've never bought a console at launch. Even though I work in information technology and I try to be cutting edge in that, I'm a late adopter when it comes to game consoles and things like that. Because A, I can't always justify the 200 to $400 price for a new console. But then also, you know, you have things like the Xbox 360, Red Ring of Death, and some of that. But it's a good thing to kind of wait until more than one revision comes out and you know that the hardware is solid. But with the Switch, Nintendo has always uh, had kind of a, a high level of quality for their hardware. And so I felt like it was probably a safe investment. So I, I took a chance and I called some of the stores. And of course, I live an hour from a major, not major, but you know, a, a reasonable sized city. So I called some of these stores to find out if any of them had one. Nope, we're sold out. And GameStop was sold out. Walmart was sold out. And on a whim, I called ShopCo. So I thought, well, they're probably not going to have one. But I called anyway and I said, do you have any Nintendo Switches? And when they told me after about 10 minutes of waiting on hold that, yeah, we have two. I said, I'll be right over. And so by 6.30 that evening, they had one. <laughs> so I got my Switch, and unfortunately, all they had was the consoles. So I had the Switch for two days uh, and decided not to buy anything digitally because I was I knew I was going to be going and getting some games. So I immediately picked up Bomberman R and then uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. 
Uh, I've been picking up Switch games slowly since then. I have a number of physical games, but I spent a lot of time with Breath of the Wild. It's just fantastic. I, I put close to 400 hours in, into it oh, wow. plus two playthroughs. <laughs> yeah. Um, having only kind of got the Zelda bug, starting with the original Legend of Zelda, when I played through with you guys, what was it, last year? Yeah, I think it, was, yeah, I think it was last year. Yeah, I think it was like last September we played Jaws and Legend of Zelda. Yeah, so when the Zelda thing finally clicked with me at that point, then I was like, okay, so now I understand the appeal of this. And so then, of course, in January I did Link's Awakening, and then once Breath of the Wild was in the picture, I was done. I'm officially a Zelda fan now, and <laughs> um, that game is so fantastic, I, I, can't even, I can't even put it into words, but... Um, but I've picked up a number of Switch titles. You know, I've got some of the, the more common ones, like Puyo Puyo Tetris. I grabbed Has-Been Heroes right away. And then I've got The Binding of Isaac Afterbirth Plus, which is surprisingly addictive. Hard as nails, but um, the story is kind of... I don't care about it, but the design and the aesthetic of that game, just that interesting combination of sort of chibi, cutesy with gore and zombie and death stuff, and it's just kind of an interesting mix. I just picked up Doom, which I'm looking forward to. I have Super Mario Odyssey now. I haven't played it yet, because I've been working on other things, including this game that we're talking about today, but I will definitely be putting some time into that. And other recent pickups, I said I wasn't going to do it, but because my Breath of the Wild experience was so good, I decided to grab the Breath of the Wild specific amiibo. Oh, okay. Um, so it's my first time dipping my toe into those waters. <laughs> so I grabbed the Guardian amiibo, both of the Link amiibos, the one with him as an archer and then him riding the horse, and then of course the Princess Zelda amiibo. And now that the four champions are out, I'm biting my lip a little bit and thinking, yeah, I'm probably going to have to go get those too, because they're pretty awesome. Do they unlock any additional content in the game? They do. I'm going to leave mine boxed. You can't use them unless you unbox them, because Nintendo has, I don't know, I, I don't, I'm not sure if they shield the portion underneath the, the little stand so that you can't use it. You have to take them out of the box to use them. But um, mostly it's just gives you a couple of treasure chests and some random items and things like that. I think these unlock more specific items, but all the amiibo that had been released up to the point where the game came out will give you something. Even if it's just random chunks of meat and basic weapons, things like that, will just drop stuff out of the sky. Oh, very cool. So, anyway, so I got that. The other thing that I'm doing, in addition to a licensed North American non-variant Game Boy set, I'm also going for a complete and total U.S. PSP set. Oh, yeah, that's right. And so, and that's complete box, manual, UMD, any other bits and pieces that come with the games, if I can get them. A lot of the special edition or limited edition titles are getting harder to get a hold of. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of high value stuff in that library. That's, that's yeah. a tough one to tackle, I think. Yeah, it's going to take me uh, a while. I think there's something like 700-plus official PSP releases in the U.S. And I'm going for not only complete, but also like all variants. 
Black Label plus Greatest Hits plus if if it got a third pressing as a favorites release, I'm getting those. Um, you know, so like I've got all three versions of Ape Escape on the Loose, for example, or another one that, that I recently found out about is Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core. There's the standard version, there's the Greatest Hits version, and then there's also a Best Buy exclusive variant that was sort of a foil, shiny cover. I stumbled across that one in the wild at a game store here a couple, three months ago and picked that one up because I was like, oh, I got to have that. Anyway, when I was out here uh, a couple of weeks ago, I picked up a couple of notable PSP games. One of those is the limited edition of a game called Hakuloki, Demon of the Fleeting Blossom. And it's essentially a visual novel, but it comes with an art book and a soundtrack CD, and it was ported by Axis Games, and there were a bunch of these that came out on the PSP in Japan. I think in the U.S. we only got two or three. There was this one, and there was another one called Sweet Fuse that I picked up, I want to say about a year and a half ago. Sweet um, Fuse is great. I actually played that. Is it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fun. I messed with it when I first got it to test the UMD, but I haven't really done anything with it since. But we didn't get much in the way of visual novels here in the U.S. And so to find that just randomly and in reasonably good shape is a little bit more than I would want to typically pay for something like a visual novel. But since I'm going for a complete set, I decided I pretty much had to do it. The other interesting pickup I got recently is I'm going for NES games. I'm not specifically going for a full set. I'm just kind of buying them as I can. Just going for loose cards, pretty much. But one of the game stores that I was at, not last weekend, but the weekend before, had a boxed NES game for five bucks. Uh, and it was complete. And so I thought, no, I'll pick it up. It's Milan's Secret Castle. Oh, it's a good game. Yeah. yeah. And so I thought, for five bucks, complete a box, you know, even though the box is a little bit beat up, that's not too bad. You usually don't see those kinds of good deals very frequently. I don't think you can find that cart for five bucks loose, so... Yeah, I know. And then I finally got my first Wisdom Tree NES cart, and I got Exodus. I have a handful of the Color Dreams and Bunch games. Matter of fact, I have Metal Fighter that I have the box for. I don't have the manual, but I've got the box and the cart that I picked up probably a decade ago for five bucks. Yeah, very cool. But uh, the only other Wisdom Tree item that I have is the King James Bible on the Game Boy, that fellow RF Gen member Slacker sent to me. Um, but this is my actual, my first actual Wisdom Tree game. So cool to have that finally. Another thing that I, I got here within the last year or so is uh, finally got myself a ColecoVision. Nice. Yeah. So uh, I had a friend over after I got that and we tested out all the games, got a bunch of uh, timing with that. But um, in addition to getting the ColecoVision with a pair of controllers, one of them didn't work very well, so I got an aftermarket controller that I can use. I also have one of the Wyco Command Control Sticks, and, and then I went to a store, a game store in my area that I frequent, and they had two of the Super Action Controllers and also the uh, Expansion Module Number 1. Very cool, man. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a, a big Coleco fan. 
played it when I was a kid. My uh, dad's co-worker actually had a ColecoVision, and my dad used to take me over to his place to play it. Later on in life, I ended up getting one, and uh, man, it's heads over the 2600 as far as graphics and playability. It's so great. I'm probably about 50 games away from a complete ColecoVision set. Nice. I guess my other most notable pickups um, has been the GameStop in my area has started selling used GameCube games, and I'll get a, a handful in frequently. And so recently I picked up Wario World, and I got uh, Wind Waker, and this is actually the, the player's choice version. And then I also got Tales of Symphonia and Beautiful Joe. But a couple of really fun GameCube pickups that I grabbed were just a couple of weekends apart. One of the Goodwill locations that I go to had Resident Evil Zero on GameCube, and then the other time I went in, they had the Resident Evil remake. I thought that was pretty cool that I was able to pick up both of those, because those are still worth a fair amount of money. GameCube games in general are more expensive than Xbox or PS2 games, yeah. as you guys know. Um, and so to find those two specifically for peanuts, basically, at a Goodwill, I thought was a, a fun uh, find. That's awesome. Yeah, Resident Evil Remake. Oddly enough, it took me forever to find a good copy. Uh, I wanted to have every Resident Evil game on the GameCube, which I finally got it with that. That was the last one I needed, ironically. Nice. So, Yeah. Well, very cool. Um, if that's all you got, Josh, we'll move on to Rich, I think. Um, <laughs> it's funny. We all got a lot of pickups. Rich, you mentioned uh, you got quite a bit, so lay it on us, man. All right. Well, the first two I want to mention are pickups that friends gave me at the Retro World Expo. Bickman actually gave me a copy of a Yars record book. Do you remember the old 45 records that had the books with them that when it would chime when you were playing it, you'd turn the page and follow it along? Um, yeah. If you remember those, then this is a Yars Revenge record by Atari, and it's actually still sealed, and he gave it to me. I'm keeping it sealed. I'm not opening this. A lot of things I do open, but with this, luckily there's stuff on YouTube where I can listen to what's on the record. And so I've listened to the record already and uh, it's pretty cool. There's this uh, really crazy scene where there's a Yar soldier leaving home and he's talking to his mom and dad about leaving and going into battle and they're like oh goodbye son and it's just so dramatic and it's super super hilarious so if you get a chance check that out on youtube just put in like yars revenge record or something like that but the other thing i got was from another one of our members isret gave me a plug and play for the atari and he knows that i'm a huge atari fan but what's cool about this is it's actually a variant. And what makes it a variant is it's in a little white cube box. This was actually one that was sold by Avon. Hmm. And so it, it's kind of neat to have like that sort of 80s, and I guess this was probably 90s by the time this was released, but that sort of Avon's calling experience with an Atari controller that you plug and play. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really neat and uh you know it's just something I've put up in my game room that people can see so I just wanted to do a quick shout out and thank those guys for those additions to my collection. But as far as personal pickups what I've had recently uh Sean you may be familiar with this game I picked up a copy of uh Twinkle Star Sprites for the uh Japanese uh Sega Saturn 
Yes, that game's fun. I have it on the Dreamcast, I think. Yeah, and for those who don't know anything about the game, basically it's a um, split-screen, competitive shmup. As you're shooting things, you can think about it as like Dr. Mario when you're playing competitively. When you do something really good, it sends like tiles and stuff over to the other screen. And so that's what it does here. When you shoot a lot of stuff or do something in a certain order or time, it throws fireballs and things like that on the other screen. And you can also create a boss battle for that other person. Both of you have life gauges. And uh, when your life gauge goes, you lose the round. And so my son and I were having a lot of fun with that. I also picked up a copy of Rampage Through Time for the PS1. If you've ever played the Rampage games, it's your normal fare. I picked up a copy of Shinobi Legions for the Sega Saturn, which was a Shinobi game that I'd been wanting for a long time. Nice! Yeah, I actually took a PCB board over to my local arcade. My arcade owner, he had been wanting it. It was from the Twin Cobra machine that I had picked up, and I traded it for that and for the Rampage Through Time. So it was a pretty fair trade, probably a better deal on his end, but still, I was really happy with getting those. I picked up a copy of Moto Rodeo for the 2600, which I'm happy to add any 2600 games whenever I can. My collection's over 550 now, so um, it's really rare that I pick up any more games for that. Really happy to pick that up from uh, South America. I actually had to have it shipped. But um, one of the cool things is those late releases are fairly cheap because they were released so late in the cycle, sent to South America because there was an over-surplus, and now they're kind of making their way back to the States. I picked up two Vita games. I picked up Deception 4 for the Vita from the Deception series. And also I picked up a copy of Odin Sphere for Vita as well, which was really was sort of the last game on my list to get for my Vita as far as physical copies. Although that list will be growing as more things come out. Sean mentioned last recording that he picked up a copy of Undertale for PS4. And my copy finally came in the mail. So I have that now. Good. We should uh, definitely try to play through that at some point. I'm not sure what the length of that game is, but uh, definitely something I'd like to put in and try out. For my buddy's store, I also picked up a copy recently of Ghost Blade HD for the PS4, which is just another shmup, uh, limited edition, and I believe uh, Play Asia put that out. I also picked up a copy of Classic Action Devilish for the DS. I've mentioned Devilish on the show before. I think it was one of my pickups for the Genesis they redid this game and put out a version on the DS. I've been looking for it for a while. Pretty cheap game. Got it for under 10 bucks, and uh, definitely one if you have a DS you should be looking out for for your collection. Now, the rest of the pickups that I have are pickups that I picked up yesterday at the convention uh, with my son. He was really excited to pick up a copy of Pokemon Blue for the Game Boy. I had yellow and red already, but I didn't have a copy of Blue. It's something that for a long time I fought getting these games because I'm not a big Pokemon fan. But at the same time, it's kind of neat to play the origin of a game. So for my son's sake, at least, you know, I'm picking up these games because it's something that he's really interested in and really into now. And, you know, I figured this is something that he'll pick up and play in the uh, very near future. I also picked up a copy of Dino Land for the Sega Genesis. This is by uh, Renovation Games. I really like the games that they put out for the Sega Genesis. So this was one that was in the box. It was uh, at a really good price, so just thought I'd pick it up. Josh, you'll be happy to hear about this pickup. I picked up a copy of Buster Bros for the Game Boy uh, as well. Uh, That's a fairly rare and hard-to-find game for the Game Boy. You don't come across a lot of copies of that. No, not too much. 
And then I also picked up a copy of Thousand Arms for the PS1. It was missing the manual, but of course I've got one on order right now. I got it for a really, really good price. As you know, I've been picking up a lot of the RPGs for the PlayStation 1. Is that one that you have, Sean? Yeah, I got it from RF Generation member Silver80 in a trade a while back. And uh, it looks actually like an interesting game. Not that we all don't collect games because they look interesting or not. But I mean, you know what I mean? It looks like a game that is on my short list of games I would like to play, actually. Yeah, very cool. And then probably my favorite pickup of the convention was RC Grand Prix for the Sega Master System. So that puts me down to 15 games remaining for a complete license set. They had a copy of James Buster Douglas Boxing there without the manual. They were asking 400 bucks for it. I was like, yep, no. I was like, yeah, no thanks, not today. Uh, (laughs) It's definitely one that I'm going to have to add to the collection, but uh, it's not one that I'm prepared to shell out that much money for quite yet so i wonder is is that a game that is typically just found because people don't realize that it's worth money you know what i mean yeah i mean it has to be because i wouldn't know if i saw that at a goodwill i i might pass it i actually the novelty of seeing a sega master system game might pique my interest but i might pass over a game like that if i didn't realize what it was you know I don't think I've ever found a Sega Master System game at a uh, Goodwill or any type of thrift shop. I mean, it's all been through like stores or the uh, rare pawn shop every now and then. Right. But uh, I have to say, man, one of my favorite pickups from the convention was I picked up a um, painting hybrid perler bead work from a guy there named Eric Trundy. You can find him at www.erictrundy.com. Really nice guy. And I'm not really into Perler Bead stuff. I just kind of feel like it's been overdone. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of it's very simplistic and a lot of it's sort of like, uh, if I wanted to, I could do that myself. You know, it's not like a really interesting thing to me. But I got to say, man, you got to check this guy's site out. I mean, he has taken it 10 levels above what everyone <laughs> else has. I picked up Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, like Little Mac and Glass Joe fighting It's a fairly large size work that I picked up. And it's really cool because it's like Mac high punching glass Joe in the face. And then he like did this sort of thing with like this little Pollock thing where he like did the brush and like flicked it. And it makes it look like spits coming out of his mouth. That's cool. But you got to see this guy's stuff, man. He did one of like Prince. He's got like a few huge works of like Patrick Bateman from uh, American Psycho. Like I said, this stuff usually doesn't excite me, but it's that level, that notch above what everybody else is doing that really attracted me to it. And he's a really nice dude. I stood and talked with him for quite a while. And so uh, I definitely wanted to pick something up from him. That's it, man. That's all my pickups. Very cool. Good stuff. I got quite a few here too. I'll try to get through them quickly. I'm still collecting Switch games, even though I don't have a Switch yet. I grabbed I Am Setsuna, the Japanese version, and I don't know if our listeners know this, but the Japanese version of I Am Setsuna has English on it. You can play it in English, and uh, that's cool because as of yet, there's not a physical release of the game in the North American region. 
I want to shout out YouTube channel My Life in Gaming for pointing this out, and that's something that our friend and former guest on the show, Dougley007, pointed out on Twitter to shout them out for kind of sharing that with the world. So yeah, I Am Setsuna Japanese version has English. You can play it perfectly in English. If you put it in a North American Switch, it just plays the game in English, so... Cool. Um, I also grabbed Retro City Rampage DX for the Switch off of V Blank, I believe is a company. They're another like small publisher making kind of limited games, and I have wanted to play that, so I figured why not grab it on the Switch and have a somewhat collectible copy of it, so... The other one I got recently was It'll Do 2 Plus, and I don't know a thing about this game. I think my pre-ordering on Amazon has gotten kind of out of control, and I'm getting (laughs) games like... (laughs) I'm getting games that I can't remember why I pre-ordered them, so I'm actually going to kind of tone it down because last week I checked my bank account, and I had like five Amazon transactions at once, and then these games started pouring in, and I'm like, "What? what is this? Why did I order this so I got <laughs> I'm going to kind of back off on that we talked about the benefits of pre-ordering from Amazon but I think it's gotten out of control for me but the next little cluster of games is kind of funny because these next three games are games that I purchased based on the title of the game and the cover art I didn't need to know anything about these games, but I pre-ordered them anyway, and that would be Cat Quest for the PlayStation 4, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Tokyo Tattoo Girls for the PlayStation Vita, and School Girl Zombie Hunter for the PlayStation 4. All three of those sound just like titles that you would love. Yes, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I, I knew by the titles and the cover art that the, this stuff would be in my wheelhouse. And School Girl Zombie Hunter is actually uh, an Oni Chambara spinoff. And I talked about Oni Chambara on a previous show. That's just cheesy hack and slash corniness. So I had pre-ordered that one. And oddly enough, I actually got my first Amiibo as well, although I didn't really go out of my way to get it. I saw on Cheap Ass Gamer that the Wii version of Skylanders Superchargers uh, was selling at Toys R Us for $2.49. Wow. So I went ahead and ordered one of those with shipping. It, it came out to like 8 bucks. so... I got that, and that comes with a Bowser Amiibo. So, yeah, I kind of indirectly got my first Amiibo there. It's probably my first and only Amiibo because I already have enough Skylanders that I don't know what to do with. And, of course, now that I got this game, I had to go to Five Below and grab some Supercharger Skylanders for the game. And I'll wrap up my scores with a really awesome package that I got from Rich in the mail we're always on the lookout for each other and rich you got this pawn shop or something that has all these great items <laughs> for uh kind of amazing prices so yeah i got a text asking if i needed the grand stream saga for the ps1 and that's what kind of started us off i had you grab that for me that's one i've been looking for and then you text me uh, Omega Boost for the PS1, which was a game I had yeah. heard of, and I believe I have played it on the Saturn, maybe a burned copy of it, but now I have a legit copy on the PS1, again, at a crazy price. Um, and I just, I had to look up, I watched like two seconds of gameplay, and I was like, oh man, I want that. And then oddly enough, 
our listeners might not believe this, but as being a huge PlayStation 2 fan and a huge import gaming, Japanese gaming fan, I never had a Japanese PlayStation 2 game in my collection until now when Rich sent me a picture of this game, Blood, The Last Vampire Gekkon. And I don't know what it is. I'm still not exactly sure what it is, but it was so cheap that I said, yes, just grab it for me. Um, it was weird, man. It was just one of those things that just <laughs> popped up out of nowhere. And I'm like, this is like insanely cheap. And just like I, I think I told you, the instruction manual in it's just amazing. Yeah. You know, I'm like, it, it was worth it just for that. Yeah, that's kind of what caught my eye. And maybe I was just like, yes, just get it. It looks great. It's going to look awesome on my shelf, even if I never play it or don't understand it or whatever. It was just one of those vanity purchases that I was like, yeah, just get it for me. And also, I've been trying to grab all the uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion films because the series is kind of hard to come by. And since I saw Shin Godzilla, I've been wanting to rewatch the Eva movie series. Uh, so I grabbed the first one a while back, and Rich actually grabbed me uh, 2.22. And now I just need to get 333, which I'll probably just get off Amazon. But uh, for those that don't know, I think I've mentioned on the, on the show before, Shin Godzilla was co-directed by Hideaki Anno, who did Evangelion. And I haven't seen that in years and years and years and been wanting to rewatch it. So there's a, a movie series that is kind of a combination of a condensation and adaptation of the series into a short movie series. So anyway... Not a game pickup, but that was a cool find that you also got for me, Rich. So, yeah, that's my scores. That was a great, friendly package in the mail from you, Rich. Well, I was having to get you back for uh, getting me a copy of Night Trap. That's where that came from, from that limited runs uh, pickup that you got for me. But, yeah, happy to do it, man. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. Oh, I forgot to mention, too, I actually found a game at Savers, and I never find anything at Savers because I always go on the weekend, and also because if there's ever anything good there, it's been stolen because they leave the discs in the games. That's the only thing I don't like about Savers. I love going there and looking through the books and the games and everything, but most of the time, the discs have been stolen. Goodwill keeps them in a book in the front of the store, I think. I wish Savers would do that, too. But uh, I got a copy of uh, Lego The Hobbit for the PS4, and the disc was still in there, and it works and everything. So I thought that was kind of cool. That And that's what happens when you go to Savers on a weekday morning, I guess. So... <laughs> <laughs>
Well, we all know what happens next. So, man, we haven't done this with a guest, have we? I don't think so. Okay. I don't know what to do, Rich. <laughs> Tell us, Josh. What are you playing? <laughs> uh, I was waiting for that. Uh, let's see. Well, outside of the game that we're talking about today, I've been kind of trying to work my way through uh, my burgeoning Switch library. So most recently, I've been working on Cave Story Plus, and I had kind of tinkered with Cave Story just briefly on PC a few years back. You hear nothing but accolades about the game, and so I've been playing through that. I'm not sure how far I'm in. I think I'm quite a ways, but it's a pretty good game so far. Uh, I really like the art style and the aesthetic, and it's got good music, good uh, good soundtrack to it. The one thing that uh, I'm not as thrilled with is the jumping in the game is a little bit off. It feels like I don't have a ton of control over my jumps. And so that has led to a number of untimely deaths. And uh, that is one of those games that if you're going to play it, because it has save locations within the game, you want to save very often. (laughs) (laughs) Because you are bound to die and lose a lot of progress if you don't. I also mentioned I I spent a bunch of time with uh, Binding of Isaac Afterbirth Plus. It's a roguelike that is heavily inspired by the Legend of Zelda. And so think randomly generated Legend of Zelda dungeons that interconnect. And so you you fight your way through a dungeon that's a random layout and find weapon upgrades and things like that kind of randomly along the way. And then you fight a boss, and if you beat that boss and you move on to the ne- next floor down, uh, then you can continue on. And if you get through, I think it's five levels, you can face the final boss, which is Isaac's mom, and then... If you can defeat her, then you'll get a credit roll. And so then technically you've at least beat the game in the sense of completing a five-level run. But there's so much stuff that you can unlock in the game. I've barely scratched the surface. I mean, I've unlocked one character, and I've probably only put 25 or 30 hours into it. So you can probably sink a lot more time into it. But uh, it's pretty interesting. I also, of course, played Alleyway since I've did a review of that recently, uh, or the video review of that recently, I should say. And then most recently, I also played and reviewed Metroid 2 for my blog. And uh, holy cow, that's uh, a really good game. Um, Not perfect, but really good. And I actually played that on the Game Boy Player on my GameCube. The Game Boy Color and Game Boy Advance include a custom palette for the game that Nintendo programmed in, and so it gives Samus the cool red and yellow suit, and you know there's some tricks that Nintendo does with that, like they did with some of the Super Game Boy games, where they can layer things and actually utilize more than one four-color palette at a time, and so it actually makes it look not quite like an NES game, but closer to that than a traditional Game Boy game would be. And so I kind of contrasted that a little bit. I haven't played Metroid Samus Returns yet for the 3DS. It's excellent. But I went and, in to kind of contrast Metroid 2 with that, I went and uh, grabbed AM2R, another Metroid 2 remake on PC. And I didn't play through the whole thing, 
But that's an interesting fan game. It's really well made, and although some of the frustrations of fighting the Metroids on the Game Boy game are only somewhat exacerbated by having a much faster, smoother experience like you do with AM2R, it's still a really good game. Nintendo, of course, put a cease and desist on it, and so it's not available from the official website anymore, but it's floating out there in the internet somewhere. <laughs> but, uh, you should be able to find it without too much trouble. Uh, well, I mentioned I put nearly 400 hours into Breath of the Wild, and I played through the main campaign twice, and then I also played through most of the Trial of the Sword. I haven't started the Master Mode yet, which is the higher difficulty level, my plan is, at some point after the new story DLC launches, I think it's in December, I will probably play through the game again in Master Mode, uh, so that I can not only experience that, but then also pull in this other DLC, this other story content. My assumption is I'll be busy playing Xenoblade 2, probably, through um, most of December and probably most of January. But I thought it was funny that you mentioned recently picking up Shinobi Legions when you mentioned your pickups, Rich, because that was one of the first Sega Saturn games that I got after I bought my Saturn used probably 18 years ago. Okay. And it's one of those that I pull out on occasion just because it's kind of an old favorite from that time. And so I actually pulled that out a few weeks ago and was starting to play it again. And I absolutely love the cheesiness of the FMV and the scenes in between levels and so forth. It's just so horribly cheesy that it's so much fun. Um, but actually, I honestly think it's a better game than most people give it credit for. When you stack it up against Shinobi 3, which I think is the highlight of the series. Yeah, I agree. It kind of falls short, but taken on its own... Knowing that it was developed by Victor Kai instead of uh, Sega internal team themselves, and then sort of pitched to Sega, and the Shinobi name attached to it, probably just so it would sell, it's really a reasonably strong game on its own. And outside of a couple of control issues, and of course the curse of the early digitized Mortal Kombat style characters and, and things like that, it really is a, a pretty decent game, so... I, I have fun with that one periodically, and so I, yeah, I pulled that out a few weeks ago and put some time into that. So, uh, Rich, what are you playing? Uh, <laughs> awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> Our first ever guest, what are you playing? That was great. <laughs> well, as I mentioned earlier, this is, uh, this is Boys Weekend. So my six-year-old son and I have actually been playing a lot of stuff together. I realized that I haven't been playing a lot of stuff. And, of course, when it's just he and I, he's always wanting to play games. And um, the other night, we went to my buddy's store, and he has an arcade in the back. Well, he's got all these, like, really incredible Japanese candy cabs all over the place with mainly, like, fighting games and shmups on them. But then... He also has a four-seater, full arcade version of Darius Burst Chronicle Saviors. Oh. It's like that bench that you, you, know, you crawl into and sit on, and you can play four players. It has two screens. And so my son and I played through that. 
And basically, you pay one fee to go to the arcade and everything's set to free play. So it's a lot of fun that we could play through, you know, that whole thing together. And I didn't really realize that my son was so into shmups. He loves them. And so I told him, I said, yeah, man, I've actually have a copy of that at home. I had ordered several months ago a copy of this game from Play Asia, uh, the Japanese version. I think Limited Run actually did a, an English version of the game. Yep. I ordered mine through Play Asia. And I got to tell you, man, it's probably one of the best shmups I've ever played. And we were playing it downstairs today on the PS4 and just having a blast. It's so, so good. And it also has free play mode as well. So you can just keep playing through it. It is notoriously hard, like most shmups are, but things do have patterns as well. So I would say it's fair. But when you're able to just jump right back in, it makes for a fun experience, especially playing with someone else. And um, it's also set up so you can play four at a time. So, uh, yeah, I got to highly recommend that shmup. If you're a shmup fan, you got to buy it. I did mention that I picked up Twinkle Star Sprites, and that's something that I played uh, with my son the other day. We uh, also popped in Pokemon Blue because he was excited about that recent purchase from the convention yesterday and played through probably about an hour of that. I can see what the appeal is about. Uh, It does have heavy RPG elements, but again, I mean, Pokemon was something that came out when I was in college. It still has that like really highly kitty feel to it, even more so to the game like Earthbound. It doesn't connect with me, but it's definitely something I feel like he's going to really love and uh, enjoy having in this collection as he grows up. Uh, also popped in a copy of Buster Brothers that we had purchased at the convention. We played it through the uh, the Super Game Boy, and so that was really neat. It's your typical Buster Brothers fare, but it's actually a really nice port of the game and really clear and well done. If you follow my Twitter feed, then you would have also noticed that today I posted a picture of my son playing Berserk. This is a game that I had tried to introduce to him a few weeks ago. And so I had played Berserk and let him watch me. And I asked him and my daughters, like, do you guys want to try this out? Do you want to play it? And they were like, no, they're kind of standoffish sometimes about games. But then we, we came in my game room yesterday and he was like, hey, dad, can I play that game with the robots? I was like, yeah, man, sure. So he played through that and had a really, really fun time with it and enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, handed the controller over to me and I got to play some of that, too. That was uh Probably one of my favorite Atari 2600 games growing up was Berserk. And uh, if, if you do have a ColecoVision, I got to tell you, you got to pick up a copy of Frenzy. Same game, different name. So, yeah, that's what I've been playing. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, Sean, tell me, what are you playing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, listen, my what are you playing is very short because, as I explained earlier, I've been spending a lot of my free time with my nose in any given book, which I'm happy about. So I don't have any qualms about not playing too many games lately. I do have some, but with my apologies to you guys, I do have one score that was very important that I forgot to mention in scores, and that is... I got a backwards compatible PlayStation 3, which is something I've been looking oh, for wow, yeah. forever. And I forgot to mention, it's very important to me <laughs> because I've been wanting one forever. 
to me, this is just the ultimate machine, man. I mean, it plays PlayStation 1, 2, and 3 games. For me, I don't know what more I could ask for. So now in my room that I have the projector on, I have the Xbox One, which is backwards compatible now all the way back to the original Xbox, you know, certain certain games that they're supporting. But now I also sure. have that PlayStation 3 in there, which plays PlayStation 1, 2, and 3. So I have two consoles on my projector that play six consoles worth of games over three generations. Actually, over four generations, because you're going from PlayStation 1 all the way to the Xbox One. So, I mean, I'm so happy with my setup in there right now. I'm When I am gaming, it's in there. So one of the things I played, the only game I've played to completion since our last recording is Yakuza Dead Souls. And that is a zombie shooting spinoff, a non-canonical kind of side story of the Yakuza series. And I really enjoyed it because I was playing Ace Combat 6 last month, I mentioned, and I actually hit a wall with that game and stopped playing it. And then I tried to pick up any number of other games and just wasn't getting into anything. So I had to go to something that I was fairly certain that I would like. And also, in contrast to the mainline Yakuza games, this is a relatively short game. It took me about 12 hours to get through. It's just uh, taking the Yakuza characters and running around with guns, which is not something that's common to the main series of games. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and it was a good like kind of palate cleanser for gaming in general for me. And also, I played... A little bit of uh, Castlevania Lords of Shadow Mirror of Fate on the 3DS, which I was really into it when I first started playing it, but then it started to just kind of bog me down and I wasn't enjoying it as much. So I don't know if I'm going to end up finishing that game, but I think old school Castlevania fans will enjoy this game and uh, should give it a chance. I know the Lords of Shadow kind of franchise is, is a little looked down upon by certain fans and that's totally understandable. The console games are, you know, God of War clone third person action games, but this is actually a side scrolling old school style game. Uh, just with the graphics of the newer games. So it was pretty neat. And yeah, I'm actually not playing anything at the moment, and I'm kind of waiting to decide if I'm just going to try and beat Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, or if I'm just going <laughs> to take a break from gaming. I don't I don't know, and I don't want to be like super philosophical here, but uh, I'm just taking it easy with the gaming. <laughs> Final Fantasy Adventure is a game, Rich, that you and I have been talking about doing, it seems like, forever, man. Yeah. 
I mean, we, we had this one in the pipeline for a while, and we weren't even considering the fact that we haven't done an old school Game Boy game yet. So this is kind of cool. We're getting two birds with one stone. Actually, three, because this is our first... It's not a proper Final Fantasy game, but it's the first game we're playing with the Final Fantasy moniker in the title, so that counts, I guess. So I'll just go through our participants first. Uh, besides you and I, Rich, we had our guests today, Metal Fro, uh, Addicted, Dougley007, of course. Uh, our good friend Russ Lyman was actually streaming the game the other night on YouTube, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, you and I both popped in on him, didn't we? Yeah, he was uh, <laughs> just popping around some dungeons there. Uh, we had Steven, uh, Disposed Hero, uh, Duke Togo, and Red Dog 50. Is Red Dog 50 a newer member on the site? I don't recognize that name, actually. Yeah, he's um, a newer member. I think he might have snuck in and participated in maybe our last playthrough as well a little bit. But he said, you know, definitely I'm going to give this playthrough thing a try. So just want to give like a quick shout out to him. Thanks for joining us. And we hope that you'll join us for more of our playthroughs, you know, throughout the year. Hell yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, just some notes on the release of the game. It came out in 1991 in Japan and North America, and then later in 1993 in Europe, and it was titled Mystic Quest on the Game Boy over there. It was developed as a spin-off to the Final Fantasy series, and it is actually the first game in the Mana series, and we played Secret of Mana uh, in January of this year which is the second game in the series. Uh, this game was directed by Koichi Ishii, who would go on to direct all of the Mana games. I saw a cool quote by him where he said he doesn't look at the Mana games as a series of video games, but rather a world that can be explored through the medium of video games. And I thought that was pretty neat, maybe a little... Uh, Sounds like BS to it me. Maybe it may be a little bit. <laughs> a little pretentious. A little poetic, yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it was neat. Um, it kind of reminded me of uh, the Evil East universe that some of the Final Fantasy games and Vagrant Story is set in, and I think that kind of stuff is is actually pretty cool. So the story here, Rich, now this is kind of funny because I played... About halfway through the game, watched the rest of it on YouTube. I read all these plot summaries of the game, and I said, this game, you can't summarize the plot. It's just this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And <laughs> uh, We decided I don't want to go through that, but I will say story-wise that the game kicks off with the main character as an imprisoned gladiator, and the default name for the player character is Sumo, but you can change it to whatever you want. But, yeah, as long as it's four characters. Right, right. This is the original Game Boy, after all. Um, I had to go with Banna. Banna? Like Eric Banna? Yeah. Like Hulk? Like, nah, man. Short for banana. Oh. It's all I could fit. <laughs> Very cool. Well, this game actually starts with a boss fight. Well, I'm talking story here, so but you're a gladiator imprisoned by the Dark Lord and forced to fight for his entertainment. So you start the game by fighting one of these monsters and then escaping, 
and you overhear the Dark Lord and another character, Julius, talking about how they're going to steal the power of mana. They discover that you've escaped, and then they chase you off the edge of a waterfall, and you are presumed dead. And that's basically where the open-ended adventure kind of starts. And that becomes a... I don't want to say convoluted, but it's the kind of RPGs quest and story where you have to find this person, then find this item, then find this person, this item, and uh, traverse the world map and so on. So I don't want to get too lost in the weeds on the story, and I really am going to lean on you guys for help with the details because even as much as I played and studied and read plot synopsis of this game, it just doesn't stick to me in any relevant way that I can really express on the air like this. So I want to lean on you guys, like I said, and uh, just get your comments on the the story at large or or how it starts or anything else. And uh, I guess I'll kick it to Josh first. One thing that I noticed about the game playing through this time, I originally played the game many years ago, borrowed it from uh, one of my brother's friends and messed around with it for a little bit, didn't get very far. But one thing that struck me about the story in the beginning is it sets up the story nicely and once you do that short little gladiator fight and kind of get into the meat of the story within the first few minutes of playing your character witnesses two people dying almost immediately and so it's like okay well this is some serious stuff going on here and you know there's a big deal and it's kind of a an interesting way of pulling you into the story and making you think Okay, so we've got you know major happenings going on here, and um, you're the guy that's going to fix it for us. Thinking back to my experience of my first Final Fantasy experience, which was Final Fantasy VII, of course you've got Cloud, who in the beginning of the game is the perennial, I don't care about any of what's going on here, I'm just doing this job and going to get paid and move on. Whereas this game, at least from the way that they try to set up the story and the events in the beginning, they really try to pull you in and and sell you on, this is a big deal that's going on and you're the guy that's going to take care of it. I think that's very well put and kind of ironic being that this is, you know, we're talking about a Game Boy game and we already mentioned like the character limits on your name and, you know, they can only convey so much through a black and white screen with very small text boxes. So uh, I think that's very, very well put about the scope of the story and the stakes. Yeah, I mean, you were talking about the the main character a little bit and uh, this whole idea of this I guess the sort of oracle that has been spoken that uh, the Geminite, which are the I think the names of the people and correct me if I'm wrong, that are the ones that guard the mana tree. Right. The mana tree is sort of this life force of the world, and so you know if you played Secret of Mana with us, you know what that relationship is with the tree. It's a really interesting game, and as Josh mentions, you've got uh, at least two deaths at the beginning of the game. And it really doesn't stop there as you're going through the game. And it's something that, you know, I'll I'll talk about a little bit later in my final thoughts. But uh, this game is pretty deep for something that's on a colorless handheld system. (laughs) You know, it's pretty crazy that uh, the plot is as heavy handed and as sad as it is. But uh, yeah, I thought the story was uh, 
pretty captivating, and I really like how you start out as this hero who isn't really interested in saving the world, but then has to become the person who saves it. Very true. Well, I think we can talk about the story as we go along, like we were saying, so I'd like to just go on right ahead into some gameplay, unless anybody has any other major points about the story. Well, I just want to say that one of the other games that I played that I neglected to talk about, and probably because I only played maybe 10 minutes of it, was I did pop in a copy of Sword of Mana, which was sort of the Game Boy Advance remake of this game. And I'll tell you, the story is even more in-depth in that. I know that I've seen differing reviews of some people like it more, some people like it a lot less, they think it takes too many liberties. Um, But, you know, at the same time, if you enjoyed this game, I would say, you know, pop in Sword of Mana and, uh, you know, give it a shot. It's a different take, but, you know, very similar game to the Game Boy version. That's really all I wanted to say about that. No, I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot to mention that in the release details that there was that remake, so I'm glad you brought it up. Um, as far as gameplay in Final Fantasy Adventure, th- this game is is basically like the original Legend of Zelda game on the NES where you're going from screen to screen and fighting enemies in real time with your weapons. The difference is that you have RPG stats and leveling up. So one of my complaints from the older Zelda games is that sometimes it feels like there's no point in fighting the enemies. Uh, That's something I brought up on the podcast a couple times when talking about Zelda games. But here you have the RPG mechanics of leveling up and being able to tweak your stats every time you level up. Mm Mm-hmm. There's an inventory system and an equipment system whereby you have to change your weapons and upgrade your weapons. And also certain weapons can clear obstacles in the environment. And sometimes it can be a a little bit of a pain to remember which one. (laughs) Make sure. I will say I got lost a couple times forgetting that I could cut down trees with axes. So... Before we go any further, did either one of you guys have an issue remembering which weapons to use, or am I just foolish? I didn't. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 and just put simply, you know, I once I learned that uh, the sickle would clear out certain plants or that the axe would cut down trees and things like that, just kind of becomes part of the overall mechanics that you just have to start using. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Josh in that sense, but I think there was a point or two where I got stuck in the game where I couldn't figure out where to go, and I think it was like right after you get the chocobo, and I couldn't figure out, it says go north, and I couldn't figure out, like I had been using something besides the axe for so long, and I didn't really put it together to like, oh, I need to cut down some trees to access, you know, that northern area, so not that I forgot about what the different uses for the weapons were, but that, you know, maybe if I hadn't used it in a while that I might not put it together as far as in terms of how to solve the puzzle for that part of the game. Yeah, it seemed like there was a lot of weapon swapping through different parts of the game, not only for that reason, you know, for overcoming obstacles, but also, especially toward the latter half of the game, when you get into some of the dungeons, there are some enemies that won't be affected by whatever the strongest weapon is or the most recent weapon is that you picked up. Some of those you almost have to use magic for, and some of them 
might be affected by another weapon that you picked up recently. And so you got to sure. do a little bit of back and forth, sometimes even on the same in the same room. Yeah, and I want to say just sort of about the weapons. There's different varieties of weapons that you can pick up. It reminds me a little bit of um, Secret of Mana in that respect. There's a sword, of course. There's an axe, which can be used to cut down trees. There's the sickle, which you mentioned was to like cut down plants. There's uh, the chains, which can be used to grapple, and you can like throw it at a post. Mm. And it allows you to like grapple that and move your character to the like the other side of a river or you know whatever area you're trying to get to. I know there's places in dungeons where you have to use it. And then there's a morning star as well that's like the chain and it has the same sort of animation as the chain, but it has a ball on the end of it. It's a little bit slower, but it can also knock down walls as well, which uh, is very helpful as you move throughout the game. Which uh, basically there's an item in the game called the Matic which you can use to like knock through walls when you find them. Those are items that are either drops or that you have to purchase. And so once you get the Morningstar, you don't have to do that anymore. It basically makes that item obsolete, which is really, really nice. I mean, you don't have to worry about getting stuck in the game, which from a lot of people I hear can happen. And in the last item, there's two spears that you can use as well. And uh, you know you can actually throw those as you can, the axe. Yeah, and we should mention that the weapons all have a similar system to Secret of Mana. This is kind of the first iteration of that kind of charge up and cool down system where there's Mm -hmm. a meter on the bottom of the screen. And when that fills up, you do sort of a special or more powerful attack that depletes the meter and as you level up, the meter fills faster and faster. I forget which attribute that is. In the beginning of the game, it takes like, it seems like five minutes for that meter to fill up. And then towards the end of the game, it's just filling right up in a second or two. So, yeah, that attribute is called will. That's right. Yeah. So that's pretty cool to see the earlier version of that from this game. In general, it's just kind of instructive to play this game after playing Secret of Mana because you can see where all the, the roots of all these mechanics are. But I think maybe for me, the mechanics of the game and the leveling systems and the menus and everything was kind of what put me off of actually playing the game to completion. And I I was messaging you, Rich, that I don't have anything against this game. I mean, there's some issues with the hit detection and some other annoyances that we'll talk about within the game, but I really didn't dislike what I was playing. I just felt like um, it just wasn't enough for me to say I absolutely need to play through this whole game. So it was interesting for me in that respect. Okay. So anyway, sorry, I just got a digression there. But uh, as you go through the game, there are many different enemies and they have different patterns, just like in a Zelda game or the other mana games. And they will drop items in chests and you will have healing items and cure items in case you have a status affliction. And there's also a magic system which you have MP along with your HP. So that's pretty standard fair stuff. Uh, The first spell you get is fire, and then you get a cure spell and so on. Pretty normal stuff. Now, did you guys use the magic a lot? I feel like this is a game where you can lean on the magic a little bit more than you did in Secret of Mana. Yeah, there are certain enemies that 
you mentioned will not respond to weapons and you have to use magic. So the fire spell for me was very essential, especially probably the first half of the game. As you upgrade your weapons, some of those weapons will start to hit certain monsters. So that's really, really nice. But for me, probably the spell that I used most was Cure. Uh, That was, you know, really essential, especially toward the end of the game and some of the longer boss battles or, you know, being inside some of the dungeons for an an extended period of time. Even though it was nice that when you did level up, you got fully replenished uh, with your health and with your magic. So that helped out a lot if you use the strategy of kill things in every room, which is that's kind of the strategy I used and when I approached the game. About you, Josh, any spells that you particularly used a lot? Yeah, I was on track with you. I leaned on the fire spell quite a bit in probably about the same, about the first half of the game. Uh, I toyed around with the ice spell a little bit, and then the lit or the lightning spell once I got it. Mm -hmm. The one thing I found curious about the game's translation is, you know, you mentioned cure. That's the actual healing spell that you can recover HP. Right. But the spell that's called Heal is what will cure you of conditions like poisons and stone and things like that. So I thought it was that interesting flip that Cure is healing your HP and Heal is curing conditions (laughs) and that that didn't translate very well. Yeah, it threw me off at first. I was thinking the Cure was going to be used as you know, a way to remove afflictions. And so for a long time, I didn't use the spell on myself. Mm. And so it took me a little while to put that together. But yeah, it's very interesting. You mentioned the ice spell too. And uh, we mentioned that this game is, um, it's not only an RPG and I guess an action RPG, but um, it also has some puzzles in the game, which I think are very interesting. And a lot of those require you to use the ice spell to freeze enemies and turn them into snowmen and then push them on top of blocks, which may open doors. So um, I really thought that was cool. And with the ice spell, you can actually guide the uh, projectile, which was kind of neat as well. Yeah, that threw me when I first started using the ice spell for that because, you know, I would try and use the ice spell so that I could get an enemy that was in my path but not right next to me and then try to run away so that they wouldn't hit me. But then, of course, you do that and then the ice starts coming back toward you and I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on here? <laughs> uh, you know, and then after playing with it a little bit, I realized, oh, once you shoot the ice, then you can control it until it either hits a wall or reaches a target of some kind. And that's actually vital for a puzzle in one of the last dungeons in the game. Yeah, I don't know which one you're talking about for sure. Um, speaking about the gameplay, we'd, we'd mentioned the stats, but I wanted to talk about those a little bit. And, you know, especially with you guys, because I wanted to kind of not only talk about what the four stats were and what they did, but I wanted to see how you guys approached as far as filling up those stats. As Sean mentioned, when you level up, your stats increase, but then you also get to put a point into one of the four stats. And those stats include, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but stamina, which gives you more health. There was wisdom, which I think increases your magic points. Will, which makes your meter recharge quicker. And then I think the last one was strength or power. It was either strength or power. It's power. That uh, makes you uh, hit harder, I'm assuming. And so I wanted to see like what strategy you guys used, and did that change from the beginning to the end of the game? Josh? 
When I first started, I kind of tried to do a balance between power, stamina, and wisdom. But as I started to put points or as allocate those, I noticed that when you level up, you always get at least one point in stamina. Yeah. And you always get at least one point in will. So I never put any points in will. I just noticed that each time I leveled, that bar recharged just a little bit faster. So I started to focus on power and then also on wisdom. Because I noticed that once you reach a certain point, wisdom levels off. And the only way to get it to go up any further is to specifically allocate points to it. Oh, that's interesting. And so I started to do power up front to kind of really power up my character, if you will, just to where I could do more damage more quickly and kind of tank my way through a little bit. But then once the dungeons started to become a little bit harder, throw more precarious obstacles and things at you, I started to ramp up the wisdom because by that time I had the cure spell and I could heal myself. And so I thought, well, rather than carrying around a bunch of potions and having a full inventory all the time, I'll just up my wisdom so I've got more magic points so that I can actually cast that spell more frequently. Yeah. How about you, Sean? Did you have any sort of strategy that you were using at the beginning of the game? No, not at all. So I was just doing uh, a clockwise motion every time I leveled up. From Yeah, we talked about that. I was doing that too. I should note too that this is the kind of game, thankfully, that when you level up your MP and HP max out. So you, if you're in a tight spot, you might get lucky and, and level up and you'll be fully healed. I love that in games like this. So that was cool. Yeah, I was a little put off at the beginning and not knowing what to put stats into. So like you, I did the whole clockwise motion thing where I was putting a little into each. With an older game, you kind of figure, well, if I have at least a balanced character, I can at least finish the game, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would say for about half the game, I was doing that. And then like Josh, I moved on to putting things into strength and wisdom to increase how hard I was going to hit and increase magic. And I was just kind of flip-flopping between those two. And it, it worked out really well for me. I felt like I was able to finish the game without too much difficulty and didn't really struggle with any of the bosses in that sense either. I was able to heal enough and always had enough items where I can, you know, fill that stuff back up. We mentioned some of the weapons and the armor and stuff. And something that I thought was kind of crazy about the game, and I didn't realize this until the end, until I was doing research is that I noticed that when I would put a new weapon on, that my strength or my power would increase. I noticed when I put my armor on, that my defense would increase. When I put my helmet on, my defense would increase. And then when I would put a shield on, nothing would happen. Did you guys notice that? I think you told me that at one point, actually. Yeah, I didn't notice it specifically, but I think by the time I started playing, you had already posted something on the forum to that effect, and so I just kind of filed that away in my brain oh, okay. and, and uh, you know, understood the mechanics of the show. Uh, yeah, it's um, different from a lot of other games that I've played, and I do want to mention this for our listeners, that the shield does not increase your defense, but there are different types of projectiles in the game that the enemies fire at you. And so what the shield does is as you get a better shield, once you upgrade it from one thing to the next, 
what it does is it deflects different types of projectiles. And that basically that list of what it deflects or it absorbs increases as your shield gets better. And so I thought that was a really, really cool thing to have to the game. Not having a manual and not knowing that, it was a little daunting to me. But something neat that they put in the game that as a gamer I can really, really appreciate. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about were the chests and the the sort of the random drops in the game. There were some items that were random drops, like the best armor that you can get. I think it's called the Samurai Armor and the Samurai Helmet were random drops in the game. Did um, any of you happen to come across these or did you try to grind for any of those? No, I, the only one I was familiar with, um, I had not heard of the Samurai Armor. That's interesting. Yeah. The only one I knew about is, because I was kind of using a walkthrough toward the end of the game, was as you approach the mana tree, there are some specific enemies that will drop an Aegis shield. That was the only one I was aware of that was a specific armor or item drop like that. Everything else was potions or Maddox or keys or things like that. Yeah, I think they're sort of low drop rates, and... I was lucky enough to get the samurai armor just as a random drop from, uh, ironically, ninjas drop samurai armor. So, <laughs> so that's where I got that from. And then there's these mammoths toward the end of the game. I think they're the yeah. ones that actually drop the helmets or the shield. I'm not sure which one it is. The elephant-looking creatures yeah. that, that drop that I just item. Okay, yeah. And I tried to grind for that for a while, but then I leveled up like five times, and I'm like, you know what, forget it. So I I don't think it's worth it. So it is like sort of a low percentage rate drop, but it is kind of cool that a game that's this early and that's even on the Game Boy has that option and that ability to find something like that kind of hidden in the game. A nice touch, I thought. Nice. Well, since we're talking about items, what did y'all think about the menu system and the... I'm going to go out and say it, limited inventory space (laughs) and... Also, the fact that these drops are in chests, which are part of the environment, and that led to some sticky situations for some of our our members. Mm-hmm. I think, oh man, who was the one who brought it up on the forum? Because that was a really good point. Was it you, Josh, or was it Russ Lyman? Somebody about the chests being stuck on the screen. Might have been Russ. I don't remember specifically saying that. But I ran into the same thing where if your inventory is full, because you can literally only have a screen full of items, and then you walk up to a chest and run into the chest, you get a message that says, can't carry, and then you can't move the chest. It just tries to open it every time you touch it. And so the only way to get past that is to either use or drop an item and then go back and grab the chest. The nice thing is once you do, you can then strike the chest with a weapon to effectively destroy it and clear the path. Yeah. Another option, if it's blocking an entrance way for you, you can go out of the other entrance exit and come back and it'll have disappeared as well. It's another way to do it if you don't want to take anything out of your inventory. But I mean, just kind of getting to the inventory part that Sean brings up, it is annoying like having that limited of an inventory. Again, you know, I'm playing this game without a manual, not knowing what a lot of items do. Like, you get an item like Pillow, and you're like, do I need to save this? Is this something that I'm going to need later in the game? But then you realize that Pillow means basically soft, and if you get turned to stone, that's what you use to get rid of that. And so once you start learning about these things that cure your ailments, and you, you realize that you have a heal spell, 
and that most of these ailments only last for like a few seconds anyway, you realize that those items are worthless anyway. And so you can kind of clear out your inventory a little bit better. But I, I got to agree, you know, having such a limited inventory is quite annoying. Yeah, I started to kind of do a thing where, especially things like that, the pillow or a lot of the single-use spell items, I stockpiled those for a little while. And then once I realized I'm not using these things, then I just started taking them back to the town that I was closest to and selling them. Yeah. Because uh, there were a couple of times when I was a little bit light on cash in order to buy whatever the next set of armor or items that I needed for, you know, the next quest. Yeah. And so I started using that as just a way to basically pad my purse, so to speak, so I could buy that stuff and then move on. Yeah, and I gotta say that, like, grinding for money in this game, it wasn't bad. Basically, when you destroy an enemy, you automatically get money for destroying the enemy. You don't have to pick up anything. It doesn't tell you, oh, you got so much money. But, you know, more difficult enemies drop more money, whereas, you know, lesser enemies drop a little bit of money. But there's also items in the game like gold and rubies that you get, and you can sell those to the stores for a hefty sum and uh, really increase your money in the game. And what I did like about this game was I never felt like I was super strapped for cash. If I had to grind, it usually was only for like a few minutes to get enough cash to, um, you know, purchase the next item. But again, that might have a lot to do with my gameplay and how like every screen I enter, I feel like I have to clear it. That's how I basically played the game, except, you know, maybe a few times in a few dungeons where a lot of the enemies were magic based enemies. And oftentimes I would try to skip those if I could. Yeah, I kind of was in the same boat. I was mostly clearing every screen of enemies and so you kind of grind organically, you level organically that way. You know, you really don't have to go out and grind in the sense of go out and fight a bunch of screens worth of enemies, go back to town, heal, and then go out and rinse, repeat kind of a thing. The flow and the pacing in that sense I thought was really good in, in that you didn't really have to go and, and specifically go out and, and seek out battles because as you go along, generally speaking, the level that your character is at and the, like you say, the amount of money that you have and all that, you get pretty close to being where you need to be through most of the game. Yeah, that's very true. Very, very well put. So with the overall pacing of the game being good, as you mentioned, Josh, I think we can touch on a few of the gameplay shortcomings. There's two very obvious ones to me, and we can discuss them first, which would be the hit detection and hit boxes, and also the fact that when you're going from screen to screen, sometimes you're literally sharing the sprite space with an enemy as soon as the screen converts, and there's really nothing you can do than take a large hit of HP, especially earlier in the game. So I wonder, Josh, you, as especially as a, as a Game Boy guru... Um, how, how does this self-proclaimed? <laughs> so yeah, exactly. how you felt this would stack up as far as you know the hit detection in general, and and for me, I, I played Game Boy games when I was a kid. I didn't find it to be too archaic, but it was really kind of a you know a throwback that I didn't really want to be thrown back to. Let's say so. I wonder if you can comment on all that. Sure. Well, and I'll piggyback on what you just said and say that that also is pertinent to the environment as well. 
So if you move from one screen into the next and your character is basically standing on top of what is effectively a peak in like a hill or something like that, sometimes your character gets stuck and you can't move other than to go back to the screen that you were just on and move up or over or something like that so that you can then go back to the screen that you got stuck on and move freely. I found that to be true almost equally as much as as, uh, the scenario you described. But yeah, the hit detection is something that bothered me. I kind of worked my way around it, so to speak, throughout the course of the game. One of the things in conjunction with that bothered me early on in the game as well is some of the weapons, like the sickle or the axe, and then especially the chain, depending on the enemy and your distance from the enemy and how the weapon hits the enemy, sometimes those will pull that enemy to you. Oh, yes. And if you're not striking a final blow and that enemy still has HP, then you're going to get damaged and then subsequently knocked back during that event and then have to go and attack them again and hope that that next time that you attack them is the final time you have to do that or, again, risk taking damage again. And so that really bothered me up front So my strategy changed throughout the game to just kind of walking up and start wailing away at them to a little bit more of a measured approach, especially once I got the chain, because then you've got the advantage of distance. And so I noticed that if I hit an enemy with the chain and they are close enough to me to where the length of the chain is out and they're about halfway down the chain, it's going to more than likely pull them back to me. So I try to distance myself so that I'm hitting them with the end of the chain so that I'm knocking them back rather than pulling them toward me. And then I can inch up a little bit more and strike them again and just kind of keep doing that until uh, until I take them out. You know, I save myself a lot of HP doing that. But yeah, the, overall, the hit detection was somewhat dodgy throughout the whole game. Like I said, it was a problem early on and it was a pretty big annoyance, but... Once you kind of get used to it and understand that this is just a shortcoming of the game's programming, you can kind of work around it and make it work because the difficulty of the game, by and large, isn't too punishing. Uh, so as long as you keep either enough MP to continue to, to cure or keep a couple of healing items in your inventory for chances when you can't, you can work around it. Yeah, I agree, Josh. I mean, what I thought about the game was that at first I was really annoyed by the hit detection and I think it was a problem with the hit detection but also a problem with the weapons that you had at the beginning of the game as opposed to what you got at the end of the game or toward the middle of the game. Like you said, the chains and the the more distance-wielding weapons were just so much better and really changed the whole game for me. And, and even like the spears or the lances stretched out a little bit further and gave you some safe space to kind of fight in because the enemy patterns are uh, are a little tough to distinguish early on and uh, can really take you out of your groove. And especially if you're playing on a Game Boy or a pocket Game Boy like I started the game with. <laughs> Funny story, and to kind of get into something else about the game I wanted to talk about, I started playing this during my travels to and from Retro World Expo on a pocket Game Boy, 
And uh, I had to start the game over like three times because I kept dying and I kept looking for an innkeeper to save my game at when all I had to do was hit the select button and it's an option. You can save on the fly at any time, which is nice. And you have two save slots, which is even nicer because you can save before you go into a dungeon. So if you do get stuck, there are points in the game where you can get stuck in the game. If you save before you went into the dungeon, you know, you can go get items or whatever you might need to kind of work that out on your next attempt. But uh, again, there are several things that I could gripe about in this game. Hit detection, like you said, pulling enemies closer to you was annoying at times. But I guess that I always felt like I always had enough stamina or enough health that I could always heal. And it really wasn't so big of a nuisance that it affected gameplay for me, especially toward the um, latter three quarters of the game. Yeah, I mean, once you get used to those shortcomings, it really isn't that big of a deal. What I found to be more of an annoyance was the fact that, as you mentioned on the first page, uh, the first post, one of the tips that you, you mentioned was to make sure that you always have the things that you need, especially like keys. Mm -hmm. Keys and Maddox. Oh, geez. Yeah. There was a couple of times when I legitimately got stuck because I didn't have a Maddox. One in particular, which I'll mention, is um, when I first found the golem, I found that none of the weapons that I had would damage him. Right. I was like, okay, so do I have to use Maddox against this guy? And that damaged him. So I thought, oh, well, I don't have enough to go and kill him. So then I went and did a bunch of grinding and, and went back to the town that it was near and bought, I think, three Maddox. Then on my way back... I went a slightly different direction and discovered the... The Morning Star. Yeah, the boss that held the Morning Star, which I didn't get to the first time because even though the game is reasonably linear, you don't have to go that way in order to get to where the golem is at. So I, I totally skipped that the first time. So then once I got the Morning Star and found the golem again, I used it because uh, I thought, oh, well, here's a, a new weapon I didn't have. And it was right before the boss. Let's see if it works. And lo and behold, it did. So I went and, uh, and bought three sets of Maddox basically for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and on the last tower at the end, I got stuck because I used up a key and I didn't have any keys left. And so I was going back and forth between rooms, trying to grind and see if I could get a key drop. And of course, they're dropping elixirs left and right, but I can't get a key. And so I actually had to revert to an older save slot that was just prior to that, where I still had two keys left. And I just was like, okay, I'm not going to go through this door because I need these keys for later doors. Yeah, I mean, it's important to note we were talking about drops and like random drops and things like that. But it, what kind of throws you off is that keys are dropped in this game by some of the beginning creatures. But you don't have those creatures later on in the game. And so you don't get those keys in Maddox. You actually have to go to the store and purchase those. And so I think you're under the assumption that like a Legend of Zelda game, that you're going to have enough keys when you go into a dungeon. And when that is really not the case, you actually have to stock up on those. And I would have three slots worth of keys before going into each dungeon and would still be worried that I might run out of keys at some point. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I was worried because some of the doors and some of the places where you break through the walls with the Matic, 
those replenish if you go like so many screens away. And so that's the way you can get stuck. And that's why, you know, when I put up the thing, I was like, make sure that you note that you should be running two save files side by side or, you know, it can hurt you in the game. You were talking about the golem and how the Morningstar is the thing that has to take out the golem. Well, I did want to mention that there are other places in the game that are sort of like puzzle-like that you kind of have to figure out how to, you know, move forward in the game. And one of the most notorious is the figure eight. You know what area I'm talking about, right? Yes. It's funny. I popped into Russ Lyman's feed the other night and he was on that exact part. So in the comments for his live feed, I was putting, yeah, you're at the right place. That's the figure eight tree. Because from what I know from people who've played this game in the past, that was one of the major gripes with this game. And I guess you would say the most legendary gripe for this particular Game Boy game. Yeah, that's the Simon's Quest kneel and wait for the tornado (laughs) thing. Uh, in this game, yeah. because it's so it's so random and obtuse that who's going to think of making a figure eight around this pair of trees in order to open the door to this dungeon? Yeah, it's not a really great clue. Okay, I must not have gotten that far, but I was using a walkthrough when I was playing it, so I would have <laughs> I wouldn't have had to try hard to figure that out. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't like. I had to consult one myself oh, okay. to figure that out. It's the only place. Yeah, yeah, I don't like those kind of moments in the, in those games, but. Uh, I wonder if you guys want to touch real quick on the boss battles, because much like Secret of Mana, there are many boss battles in this game. And for a Game Boy title that can be completed in under 10 hours or so, there's over 20 boss battles. And um, much like Secret of Mana, they are just really beautiful sprites, uh, especially for the Game Boy I do feel that uh, most of the bosses can be boiled down to a large sprite slowly moving around the screen, shooting some kind of projectile at you while you kind of bob and weave and try and get your hits in, which is why my favorite out of the ones I played and I saw, you know, on YouTube was the Megapede, because when I was playing that boss, I really liked the rhythm of the Megapede and you can only hit it in its head So you have to really be careful of how you position yourself and when you can get your hits in. As you're playing that battle, you realize that the patterns are repeating. So you can really get in a cool rhythm of hitting and moving and making sure you don't get knocked off the screen. And I particularly enjoyed that boss battle. So Josh, did you uh, have a favorite boss or how did you feel about the bosses in general? Well, first of all, let me just say that the crab is a huge jerk, and I hate him. (laughs) Um, You know, there were a couple of really cool bosses in the game. I think more early on, I'm trying to think, there was like a Minotaur boss that was pretty cool. And then one of the later bosses, Carrie, which was just this bizarre sort of amalgamation of different mythical kind of figures kind of blended into one. So like a griffin, right? Yeah, except it was really bizarre. I did notice that the bosses were more interesting at the beginning of the game. Toward the end of the game, even though some of them looked cool, like the Mantis or, you know, the Dragon bosses, they started to have less interesting patterns, and boss fights kind of devolved into rush the boss, hit it with it in its weak point, run away, heal, rinse, repeat. And that kind of became the thing toward the end of the game. I felt like there was a lot less strategy necessary Especially once you got to a point where you had more HP, more ability to heal yourself during a boss battle. 
there became less reason to try and be particular in avoiding attacks and things like that. And really, some of the later bosses, their attacks or their movement around the screen became harder to avoid Mm -hmm. anyway when you try to hit the weak point. And so it just became a simple exercise of try to take them out as quickly as you can and make sure you keep healing. Yeah, I agree for that for the most part. Uh, One of the tougher bosses for me was probably the Lich. He really didn't have much of a pattern that you could figure out. That was more of a just smash and heal type of battle, in my opinion. Um, You know, some of those battles, like toward the end, especially with the lances or with some of the later swords, you could like let those charge all the way up. And then if you use the attack where you press to the side and swing, you could fly across the screen and back across the screen, which would always do damage. And, you know, when you're in that mode, you don't take any damage either. And so that was kind of a simple strategy to beat those guys. So, yeah, I did feel like, you know, Sean, as you mentioned, some of the fights at the beginning were a lot more creative than how they got toward the end of the game. But I do have to say that final battle was really awesome. I really did enjoy the final battle with Julius in like the three different phases. I thought that was really, really well done and really worthy of a final boss battle. Yeah, I I cheesed the final Julius form with that running slash attack that you mentioned. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, well, I I, I attacked all of his forms in that way. Oh, nice. jump ahead and move into the music and then we'll talk about the characters and kind of wrap up the story as we start bringing it home here the game was composed by kenji ito who did all the mana games and some of the saga games i don't want to say that this was the b team of square but you know this isn't nobu uematsu but it's almost the next best thing i don't know if i'm even saying that in the way i want to say that but these aren't the main directors of Final Fantasy, and I think the music is kind of in the same vein of that. And I actually really like the music in this game, and I think many people around the world and around the internet have a soft spot for that Game Boy sound chip. It's very well-known and famously used in, in its own genre of music in the modern age. So although it does get repetitive... It has its highs and lows tonally and really gives a sense of intensity and adventure. So yeah, I I definitely like the music and for once I kind of noticed it (laughs) as part of the game. So I wonder, uh, Rich, did you enjoy the music of this one? You played it on original hardware, so how did you feel about it? I think I mentioned to you that Typically before calls, I will, you know, go back through and listen to a YouTube video and that 
a lot of times the reason I have to do that is because the music doesn't really stick out to me. For this one, I didn't listen to the YouTube videos after playing the game or before the call because I thought the music was so awesome in this game. It's so incredible that like playing it on original hardware and playing it on that small handheld that you just get such really lush tones and great soundtrack for a Game Boy game. Yeah. I I don't know that I've ever heard a soundtrack like this before in the context of what it's coming out of, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Now, Josh, again, in the context of all the amazing music on the Game Boy, and we already talked about the Castlevania games and, and Super Mario Land, and there are so many others, just in general and in that context, how did you feel about the music here? I thought it was really strong. I actually grew up playing the original Final Fantasy Legend on the Game Boy because that was one of the games I owned as a kid and really enjoyed that soundtrack. And so, you know, I didn't realize that Kenji Ito had done the Saga games as well, but it made sense because when you listen to this soundtrack as compared to the three Final Fantasy Legend games, it all sounds like it's coming from the same place. And so I really enjoyed the soundtrack to this game, and um, I'm preparing myself for the uh, internet backlash when I say this, but having played Link's Awakening earlier in the year, I actually kind of think I like the soundtrack in this game a little bit better than that, just because I felt like the music I was just really well composed and... Like you say, it does get repetitive after a while, but I never really got tired of it. And there were a couple of instances where, you know, here in my game room, I've got my CRT set up with my GameCube, and I would leave the game going on the overworld with it paused while I was in the next room eating a meal or something like that. And I was hearing this music for, you know, 20, 25, 30 minutes while I was eating, and I didn't get overly tired of it. And then I would come back and immediately be playing it again when I got done, and I never really tired of the music. One thing I'll mention that I, I really enjoyed was the little ditty that plays when you stay in an inn. <laughs> when, when you get done with the inn, it reminded me of the kind of little snippets of music that I would get in PC games when I was a kid on early PCs where it was just the built-in uh, speaker rather than a, a proper sound card. And so it reminded me of that kind of little snippet of music that you would get that they could do with a PC speaker that wasn't annoying and was catchy, but didn't overstay its welcome. And so I kind of appreciated that, and that always made me smile. But yeah, overall, I, I really liked the soundtrack, and I thought the sound design overall was uh, was pretty strong. Yeah, and um, just want to mention it real quick. How about that lack of music in the one town? I thought it was a really cool implementation into the game. I mean, since we're talking about music, it really made me long for more music. It was the town where the um, the brother, who you were having to save and use the teardrops on, he was turned into a parrot, and he was like the musician in the town. And so when he's captured or turned into a, the parrot, there's no music inside that town, which I thought was pretty neat. I don't know, did you guys notice that? You know, now that you mention it... You're right. I don't think I noticed it immediately. Yeah. That is a neat effect because, of course, him playing, what was it, the harp? Yeah. Was what would keep the poison at bay so that you could move into the next area. 
yeah, I just thought that was neat. I mean, I know that that doesn't have to do anything with the music design, but it really made me focus on the music and lack thereof. And me being like, oh my gosh, where's the music at? I love the music so much. Where did it go? You know, and so I don't really do that with a lot of games. I don't, I don't think about games in that way for the most part when it comes to music. I mean, anybody that listens to this podcast knows Sean and I are just like, oh yeah, it's kind of the standard fare of music. You know, it was good. You know, it wasn't bad, but you know, it just really didn't jump out to me. I, I felt like with this game, the music really did jump out to me. That is cool. And I want to use a vocabulary word that I've learned recently, which is diegetic music. And that is music that is created within the world of the fiction. So the fact that the one character plays a harp and when he's unable to, there's no music in the town is a good example of that. So glad you brought that up. And uh, Very cool. Yeah. I learned a new word today, too. Diegetic. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well. So does that that mean that uh, because he couldn't play his harp, he had diegetes? (laughs) Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Or or, or should I say (laughs) diegetes? All right. Well. I want to start wrapping up here and we do have more notes about this story and we kind of promised we would wrap up the story, but I really don't want to be the one to do that. So I hate to put you on the spot, Rich or Josh. I mean, if you guys want to just fill us in on the end of the story and then we'll start to take it home with our final thoughts. And if you have anything else you want to chime in on. Yeah. So if you're worried about spoilers, now might be the time to uh, hit that pause button and finish the game. But about halfway through the story, you actually encounter Dark Lord, who is the major enemy of this game. With a name like Dark Lord, you only have uh, so many career paths, right? You take that little test in high school to tell you what you would be good at. And for him, it was going to be, you need to be an evil overlord who seeks out destroying the (laughs) world. But you actually fight him in the middle of the game, which is really interesting. And so the real bad guy of the game becomes Julius, who's this sort of, um, I don't know, Josh, would you say like apprentice? Yeah, I would say so. Dark Lord, by the point that you fight him, at least for me, I found that battle to be relatively easy. Yeah. It's like fighting a Dark Knight in uh, Zelda, right? Yeah, I mean, Dark Lord turns out to be more or less a red herring. And Julius is the real threat. Right. And so one thing that we didn't really mention at the beginning, very early on in the story, you run into the heroine of the story who in Japan was called Fuji. Of course, you can put in any four letter word that you want to for uh, that female character's name. And I use my daughter's name, uh, which I usually do with most games of that nature. And you find out later that she is actually the one who has been chosen as the power of the mana tree. And so that's why the Dark Lord and Julius have interest in her and they're trying to capture her. You randomly run into her and sort of become her protector and debatable as far as whether there's some relationship between her and the main character. That's sort of where it leads up to toward the end. You're battling Julius as the main character and you realize that the heroine's mother was actually a descendant of the mana tree, and she's the one who's basically the guardian and the the person that has to stay in place 
of the mana tree to keep it alive. Yeah, I think you were saying heroin. You meant to say hero. Uh, it is the player yeah, character's yeah. mother who is the tree. Right. And so you found out this whole time that you're sort of this savior. You're actually the new Geminite who is the savior of this world. This oracle has spoken of your forthcoming. And so basically that's where the game ends as far as you in a one-on-one battle against Julius uh, to save the world. Did I miss anything there, Fro? Um, no. I, the thing I thought was interesting is that speaking from a perspective of I've played through this game now, but I've not yet played Secret of Mana. So maybe you guys can, uh, can fill in the gaps for me, but it was interesting that because the tree was destroyed in the battle with Julius in his final form, essentially the heroine has to become the tree immediately. Yes. And so it's interesting that they decided to do that rather than can she have a child and then then become the tree, and then when that child grows up, you know, then kind of take over again, or, you know, continue the, the line. But of course, at the end of the game, the mom tells them that now there's nobody else, so you as a tree, when you fall, or when you're gone, then peace will be gone. And so I'm wondering if that plays into the secret of mana, in terms of how that all starts. Man. You're making me think back to January in the story. Yeah, I, was say, I don't actors. really remember either. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's sort of that heavy handed, like kind of odd storyline that this same game has. And it's just so convoluted that it's really hard to come back to that and remember. But I do remember that. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem. Once again, it's basically that same rehashing of that story. Once again, people are after the mana tree and trying to take the ability away from the mana tree to destroy the world. Very similar in concept in that way. So that's sort of the flushing out of the story. I did want to mention while we're talking about it, one thing that really shocked me about this game, we we noted that it really pulls at your heartstrings, but I want to talk about the sacrifice of the female characters in this game. There are a lot of people who die in this game, not only that, but sacrifice a lot in this game. And I know that we're in a culture where there's a lot of sort of backlash about the damsel in the stress and what is her name? Is it uh, Anita Sarkeesian? We're kind of in that world where people are attacking each other from both sides, and it's gotten so ugly. But this game, for one, is being a classic game. I mean, the women in this game are such strong characters, and they sacrifice so much. You know, you've got the main character that we were just talking about, Fuji. We've got Sumo's mother, who had to sacrifice basically her life to save the world. There was also Amanda, who was the girl who was going to save her brother and gets bitten by the Medusa. And you have to actually kill her and take her tears to save her brother. And then you've also got Marcy, who you may remember at the end, uh, Josh, as the robot who actually saves you and throws you across a gap so that you can go on to save the world while this building she's standing on basically crumbles and she dies. Again, this game is really sad, but man, just looking at the sacrifice of the female characters in this game, I don't know if this is you know something that's ever been pointed out, but it's not just tragic, but pretty amazing. It says a lot about this game. Yeah, it really speaks to the breadth of the storytelling and to the, the scope. You're playing as the hero who saves the world, but there's a lot of sacrifice and a lot of loss and a lot of other people along the way 
who are giving of themselves to help you in your quest to save the world. And so, you know, it's not just one guy with a sword and a shield against the baddie. It's a lot more expansive and a lot more robust than that. And so, yeah, I really appreciate the fact that you have all these people in the story. And like you say, primarily women you know, sacrificing for the greater good of, you know, the narrative and really making the story all that much more impactful. Yeah, I agree. Nice. That was very well said by both of y'all to the point where I really don't have anything to add. It's just a good point. I don't know what else to say there. So I guess at this point we can go on and bring it on home. I think I would like to give my final thoughts first because I probably have the least to say about this game. Like I said, I just wasn't getting any joy out of the game. I didn't dislike it. I didn't hate it. I wasn't even frustrated by it. You can save the game wherever you want. And I was using save states anyway, so I wasn't having any trouble with the game. It wasn't doing a damn thing for me, so I made the decision to just YouTube it, which is, you know, something we do every so often. And I think that this game should be played by people who are interested in how the Mana series started, how the early days of Square and the Game Boy, like... To me, it's playable as like kind of a history lesson. It's one of those games where you can see how far we've come kind of thing. On the other hand, it's immensely playable when compared to other games of the era. So I know I'm kind of saying two things at once, but I do believe it's much more playable than many games of its time, but also still of its time, if that makes any sense. So it's hard for me to say I recommend it or not. It's more of like a historical relic for me because I'm not a huge, huge retro gamer anymore. So this is really something that I'm like reaching way back for. So yeah, that's what I have to say about it. So Josh, you want to give us your final thoughts on the the game here? Sure. One of the things that stands out to me is, again, having played Link's Awakening back in January and realizing that this game was released a year prior, despite the fact that, as we've discussed, it has some flaws and some shortcomings, is still an excellent game that I would agree should be one that you seek out, not only as a way to see kind of the beginnings of the Mana series, but also as a game of its time, of how good it is despite its flaws and its shortcomings. And the fact that it took that action-adventure RPG approach a year prior to the flagship Legend of Zelda game, and really still holds up for the most part, and stacks up pretty well against Nintendo's own franchise, at least in terms of on that platform. I haven't played enough of the Game Boy games in the library to know whether or not I can say this definitively, but I've not come across anything, or am aware of anything, that came out in the West that would even come close to Link's Awakening other than Final Fantasy Adventure. I know that for The Frog, The Bell Tolls, which was kind of a quasi-prequel to Link's Awakening, but was only ever released in Japan, is held in very high regard. But as far as what we got in the West, I'm not sure there's anything else on the Game Boy Library that comes close. So I would say in the 500-plus games that we got here in the West, this has got to be easily top 100, if not top 50 or even top 25. 
is certainly one that if you are remotely into action RPGs or RPGs or action adventure titles or Game Boy games in general, you should definitely seek it out and play it and just experience it at least once. Very cool. Very well put, Josh. So, Rich, we got two differing... Well, I'm not in opposition to Josh. My feelings are just totally different (laughs) on this game. So, some very strong words from him. What are your final thoughts and takeaways from the game? Yeah, um, I didn't know how I was going to enjoy this game coming into it. And really coming off playing Secret of Mana, I was kind of like, really, I'm going to play another Mana game this year? I I don't know. You know, I don't know how I'm going to be able to take that once you offered that up as the choice for the game of the month. But it's been, like you said, that game has kind of been sitting at the back of our playthrough backlog for so long. And I've wanted to do a Game Boy game for so long. And I was like, yeah, let's do that. Let's let's give it a shot. And I got to say, man, I am blown away by this game, how good it is. And it's not only that, but... When you think about this game in relation to what else is on the Game Boy and the time that this game was put out and everything that's in this game, it's simply amazing. I couldn't believe that they could pack this much action and this much fun into a Game Boy title. I mean, I was playing games that my brother had like Golf and like Quirk, which are just simple puzzle games. And Tetris, even though Tetris is a fantastic game, but just the simplicity of it on a handheld. And let's think about what was out before the Game Boy came out. I mean, we were playing stuff like Tiger Electronic games. Think about how bad those are. Or Game & Watch. Just how simple. And like where we're going with this and how huge of a leap a game like this is. I was knocked back by it. I think it's an incredible, incredible game. The sprite work in this game is amazing. What they got out of what they had to work with is incredible. And you really see that more when you play it on like a Super Game Boy or something like that, when you can really see it on the big screen and really see the detail that's put into it. It still looks good on the Game Boy, but when you can look at a broader perspective of the work that was put into these sprites, it's really amazing how much detail they got out of everything, especially the bosses in this game, which look fantastic. Something I did want to mention is that we know that this is a Final Fantasy game, but truly this is a part of the Mana series. But there are things in this game from Final Fantasy. A lot of the characters that you fight, some of the warriors, the wizards and stuff, are direct sprites from the Final Fantasy series. But it also has enemies that are specific to the Mana series, which is really nice too. And so it's a really neat kind of blending of those two things that at that point in time were probably looked at cohesively, but now we can look at them and say, okay, this comes from the Mana series, this comes from Final Fantasy. And so it's like a little bit of a hodgepodge, and it's kind of nice to look at the game and pick those things out. One of the things that I have to mention, and Josh, you probably know if this is a fact. Of course, as we've mentioned before, anything said on this show is fact. So we don't really have to worry about it. But I believe that this was the first game ever that used the Chocobo. I could be wrong, but I think in all the Final Fantasy games that this was the first instance where that was used. And that has become quite the staple of the Final Fantasy series. And people love Chocobos. 
but yeah, my final thoughts on the game are if you're a Game Boy collector, whether you're you know going for a full set or whether you're just someone who casually collects Game Boy games, this is a game that's going to hit you in about the $20, $25 price range. And I think that this is a game that if you love RPGs, and especially action RPGs, you got to have it in your collection. And just a kind of final thought here, I was going to compare this game to Secret of Mana, which we played at the beginning of the year, but you know what? I'm going to save my thoughts on that for our next episode in December, where we talk about our top five games that we play throughout the year. Will both of these games make it? Will only one of these games make it? You'll have to tune in to find out. Wow. Very intriguing, Rich. (laughs) Very nice. And I just want to say, I was trying to very vigorously trying to Google the first appearance of the Chocobo, which was actually Final Fantasy II, but we didn't get Final Fantasy II in North America. So you might still be right about the first appearance of the Chocobo in North America, but I'm not going to dig any deeper on that. I'm just going to let you be right on it. Well, I appreciate the fact-checking. If we did a little more of that in politics, (laughs) our country wouldn't be as screwed as it is. That would be nice. So listen, I just want to say to the both of you that I really appreciate you taking a game that was, for me, it was just kind of a false start. I just couldn't get into it. And uh, I was a little nervous coming on the air today because I tried to prepare, but I felt like there was nothing I could do to be as prepared as if I had actually played the game, which is almost always the truth. So... Rich and Josh, I really appreciate you kind of holding me up and helping me with this conversation. And um, thank you, Josh, for coming on the show. And I want to just give you a chance to tell people where they can find you on the Internet and why they should look for the Game Boy Guru or your other Internet personalities. Sure. First of all, I appreciate you guys inviting me. I didn't even realize that you hadn't covered a Game Boy game before on the podcast. And so that feels really good to have been invited for that as kind of the inaugural Game Boy playthrough. But yeah, I've got two Twitter profiles. If you search for Metal Fro on Twitter, that's kind of my everything profile. So that's my personal one. I talk music, games, technology, politics, you know, whatever. Um, if you want specifically gaming stuff, follow at Game Boy Guru and, uh, Actually, I forgot to mention it before, but I actually kind of live-tweeted my experience playing through this game on that account. And so, as I said, I I used my Game Boy Player, and I just took pictures with my phone and was tweeting them and adding, you know, little quips to those as I was playing through it. I like to do that. I did that when I played through Link's Awakening, and I try to do that as much as I can as I'm focusing on a specific game, you know, to kind of keep up with what I'm playing my blog is gameboyguru.blogspot.com. That's where you'll get my written reviews and then a couple of other articles I've done. And then my YouTube channel, uh, it's not big enough yet to have my own specific link. So just search for Game Boy Guru and you'll see the black and white picture as pixelated of me in a hat with my beard. Same as what I have on the RF Generation forums. And so go subscribe to me there so I can hit 100 subscribers and get to watch my pickups videos and then also my my reviews that I'm doing and different things like that. Awesome. Well, everybody go check that out. And uh, Josh, thanks again for coming on the show. And at this point, I'm going to kick it over to Rich, who's going to tell us about our December playthrough. All right, guys. 
first, before uh, I get into the December playthrough, I just want to thank both of you guys for being awesome members of RF Generation and the site and for doing such a great job with our blog posts that go up on the front page. I wanted to mention at the beginning of the show, but failed to, that we actually received an award for best retro gaming blogs on the internet. And so I really appreciate all that you guys do and then all that our other writers and everyone who works on the front page do as well. It's a long list of people. It's a labor of love. We don't get paid anything for it. And so I just wanted to throw a quick shout out and say thanks to everyone for that. But getting into our December game, if you do follow the front page, you'll notice that every December, we here at the RF Gen Playcast always hold a competition. In the past, we've done the Streets of Rage series, we've done Shmups, we've done a Run and Gun competition, and we've done a racing competition on the site. Well, this December is no different in that we're doing a competition, but we've selected two very popular classic games in Punch-Out! and Super Punch-Out!, Guys, get ready for an all-out brawl this December. It's going to be a great time on the site. I've got some great stuff lined up, and it's going to be so much fun. We're going to draw names of boxers from each of the different circuits, and so we're going to have a special timed event on that. Plus, you're going to be able to gather points from finishing each of the circuits, including some really good points for beating Tyson. So join us for December's competition. It's going to be a great time, and uh, I haven't started on the trophy yet, but as usual, it's going to be something that you're really going to want to fight for. episode thanks again for listening and thank you to everyone who participated in the playthrough extra special thanks once again to the game boy guru himself metal fro for sharing his expertise with us on the show be sure to check out game boy guru on youtube for more sweet game boy action and much much more Next month is December, and that can only mean one thing. It's competition time. Do you have what it takes to beat Mike Tyson? How about Mr. Dream? Put your money where your gloves are and show us what you've got as we play Punch-Out for the NES and Super Punch-Out for the SNES in a competition moderated by our very own Single Banana. Log on to RFGeneration.com right away for the full details. Thank you as always for listening, and we'll see you next time on the RF Generation Playcast.
fresh meat. Later that day, a young Yar warrior returned home to say goodbye to his parents. Although he was brave, he was also aware of the risks involved in such a dangerous mission. He knew he might never see his family again. Well, my son, I want you to know how very proud we all are of you. Doesn't he look handsome in his uniform, father? If only I were younger, I would fight alongside you. But I am an elder now, and these old wings are stiff and brittle. I'm afraid I wouldn't be much of a warrior. Father Yar reached over and grasped his young son's hand. Be careful and brave, and the victory shall be yours. Mother and father waved goodbye as their young son flew back towards the armament center. Goodbye, Goodbye, my son. son. Oh, dear, he can't hear us, whispered Mother Yar as she wiped a tear from the corner of her huge, luminous eye. They watched in silence as their son disappeared up into the clouds and was gone. <laughs>